quite honest when I said he is a writer now because Groucho has written a book. It'll Fine. be out the 18th and back again the 19th. <laughs> <laughs> It's the Marx Brothers Council Podcast, and this is episode 64, Groucho and We. Well, unbelievably, it's the end of another year, and the holiday season is well and truly upon us. For those of you listening in black and white, I can confirm that we are all surrounded by robins, up to our tie pins in snow and half-crazed with drink. Bob Cassell is on his flying mixing desk, high above the sleeping babes, dreaming of waking up and finding a new Marx Brothers Council podcast in their stockings. And halfway down the chimney, as we speak, is Noah Diamond. Hello, Matthew. I am just covered with soot and filled to the brim with girlish glee. (laughs) Well, our text for this month's sermon is Groucho's autobiography, Groucho and Me. And joining us to discuss it is a very special guest who needed no introduction when we first had him on back in episode three and needs even less of one now. But suffice to say, he's surely the world's most famous recreator of Groucho's life and work, a role he's now been assuming for nearly 40 years with no signs of slowing. In Groucho, a life in review, uh, revivals of the coconuts and animal crackers and his trailblazing one-man show, An Evening with Groucho. He is, of course, the one, the only... Mr. Frank Ferrante. Thank you, Matthew. Thank you. Hello, Noah. It's wonderful to be back. Every 60-something episodes, we should do this. (laughs) (laughs) It really was early times for us the last Mm. time we had you on. It was wonderful. It was was the the, the races show, wasn't it? I remember. I remember it well. It's really interesting if you listen back to that episode and listen to our more recent episodes. Uh, We haven't grown or developed at all. (laughs) Well, you're consistent. Come on. Give yourself the benefit of it. We're still making the exact same jokes. That's wonderful. (laughs) Keep it going, gents. So, Frank, before we get get going, um, are you are you grouchoing at present, or or is he is he in the, in the trunk at the moment? Well, he's he's revving up. This is uh, December uh, uh, of twenty twenty three. It's kind of a take a breath time after a lot of work with Groucho and uh, another role, a very also an interactive role that I did for ten months in Chicago. But to answer your question, taking a breath right now. But the research, the timing of this particular podcast is perfect because. I'm revisiting a life in review, and uh, to I haven't read Groucho and Me since I was a teenager. And as Noah and I were discussing prior to the record button being pushed, I only returned to it uh, to glean little sections to for, for performance, to add to a show, uh, for something I was writing, uh, a, a piece uh, to a friend or a promotional piece. So to read it straight through, to take it all in, to digest it, was very moving and took me back to the wonder of being... Of, of being a Marx Brothers fan in the in the mid seventies and 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 how precious uh, those books were when you found them in a vintage bookstore and we can talk about that but to answer your question Groucho will be <laughs> I'll be Grouchoing back in in the new year and and grateful for it because it's an evolving process for me uh, so going back to the source material whether it's video or or the, or the writing or the biographies is is essential. You know, it's like everything from how hard you hit an arc. You can say Hoppo or Harpo or, you know, all those little details that, that can slip when you're in performance. Um, or not slip, but you also adjust. If you're playing a 
a 1,500-seat theater, you're going to hit an R harder than you would if you could just whisper. And if you're not microphone, you can say Harpo. But if you're going to play it 1,000, you're going to have to say Harpo. You're going to just, it's those nuances. So it's great to go back to the source material, and I will be uh, very soon playing Groucho's Life again from age 15 to 85. And it's interesting to visit him in 1959 when, he, when this book came out, Groucho and me. No wish to get morbid, but um, one of your friends and heroes I know was was Hal Holbrook, who who toured his Mark Twain show to the to the very end of his life. Do you think uh, at any time you'll 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 put away the grease paint, or or do you want to uh, to, to keep with Groucho for for as long as you uh, as we possibly can? You know, I never think about quitting. It's just not designed that way, and, and I don't think most performers don't. Some do. I, I, I'm not of that ilk. I'm an old fighter, and I love it so much, Matthew. Hal performed until he was 92 years old. I saw him uh, that year, that last year. It was very moving. He didn't, he didn't, he, he rested his, he rested, he just propped himself up for just a moment in his one-man show, but he was on his feet then for two acts or an hour and a half at that point. I don't want to stop. I, mean, I think about how to revamp it all the time, you know, as I get older. Like, I'm in that weird stage of life where it's somewhere between, you know, Groucho was doing You Bet Your Life at my age. I'm 60. I'm happy to say it. But I, if I put when the hair is done and the makeup's on, I can still pull off. My energy's great. I'm healthier than ever in some ways. I just played 10 weeks. You know, I sound like a vaudevillian, and reading Groucho and me brought back my fantasy of being a vaude, wanting to be a vaudevillian, even though I'm from Sarah Madre, you know, Pasadena, California, and way off in terms of the era. But... Um, you know, uh, I, I want to keep doing it, and I will adjust the show accordingly. You know, if I start, if I played as middle-aged Groucho, I could even do it as old Groucho uh, at some point. Some, you know, recreate the Carnegie Hall. In some ways, in some way, I want to continue to share his his, his work. I, I never take remarks too seriously when someone says, "Thank you for perpetuating the legacy or sharing it." I, I, none of that really lands on me. Until recently, as I get older, it makes I see that people, it has affected people, particularly since we've come off some very difficult times in history. People do need to laugh. People do appreciate live performance. People do want to be part of, uh, in a room where other people are laughing at this type of humor, and it's complex. And this is why there's a podcast about it and books about it, and you two love, love him and them as much as, much as I do. I guess the great thing about Groucho, of course, is that we do have uh, examples of him uh, giving professional performances in recorded media throughout his adult life. So, so there, is, there is no wrong age to play him. I mean, you can, you, can, you, can, you can play him at any age because we have him at every age. It's true. And, you know, the, the further we get away from it, and I'm seeing it now, the, the, the less people are aware of him. It's just true. It's just a fact. Uh, you can't get around it. And, and you know... The fact that we're even talking about it is damn miraculous. And um, I don't think that's a bad thing. It's expected. It's not, he's not, it's not 1928. It's not 1955. It's not 1975. But there's still interest. And, uh, and, you know, listen, if I have 30 more years or so, hopefully, I would love to continue to perpetuate them. I mean, I'll, you know, we all go by the wayside. We'll, have, we'll leave a little clue or two that we were here. But those guys will be here for a long time. And I, I'm proud of the fact that what they do is meaningful to me. I love the fact. I love their style. I love their consistency. The fact that they generate so much laughter, that they had the subversive quality that uh, stimulated me, excited me, wanted me to go into the arts, made me see life differently. 
that's an important contribution that these gentlemen made. And, and their story, which is what we're going to be discussing in part, is unique. And there are many ways it's been told. And there's, it's, so much of it is apocryphal, but there's that, there are those gems, those, I mean, those germs, the, those seeds of truth, really, that's what permeates it all. Harpo Speaks is close enough to Groucho Me. Arthur's stories don't quite jibe with Groucho's stories. So, but we get, we get it. We get it. Well, Groucho and Me, I think, is a, a surprisingly neglected book these days, very much in the shadow of Harpo Speaks, I, I would suggest, for, for many contemporary fans. Um, Hector Arce tells us uh, that it was a bestseller, um, but he says that the critics were, were underwhelmed. Uh, Groucho anticipates this response with a few uh, sharp lines about the irrelevance of critics in the book, um, a line he returned to in promotional interviews. Stefan Kampfer calls it leniently reviewed, uh, but notes that uh, Groucho's opening lines about the book not necessarily being factual, honest and truthful was, as usual, truth covered in jest. He describes the book as a comic exercise in evasion. Uh, so um, to start with, I'd just like to ask you both, Frank, you have um, briefly touched on this already, but uh, w- when uh, you both first read it and, and, and what you thought of it then? I was a boy, so I was happy to get any morsel about the Marx Brothers when I was 11, 12, 13 years old. And these books were hard to get a hold of. It was in paperback in the 70s, so I had a, a paperback version of it. Uh, eventually going, you know, my, uh, you know, you'd get these, you'd get a book like Harpo Speaks at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco if you were visiting there, or Larry Edmonds famously when I was a kid, my dad would go and buy me a copy, a paperback copy of Harpo Speaks, or you get Groucho and me, uh, and I'm going to get to your, your question, but it's kind of, there was an excitement about having, there was an excitement about having, a, you know, a first edition copy of Groucho and me in your hand. Um, but you find that they had really fine vintage bookstores in Hollywood that don't exist anymore. Larry Edmonds may be the only one left in Hollywood on Hollywood Boulevard. Uh, I remember finding the memoirs of a mangy lover and just being, I can't believe I've got this book, $35. And these books at the time could be $100, $150 in the mid-70s. But, you know, the first book I, I really was, you know, I think the first Marshall book I ever received was Why a Duck. Of course, that was easy to process and digest. And pre-beta and VHS and cable and it was a miracle to have Wyaduck, you know, to be able to look at these images of the Marx Brothers and look at the captioned routines was, was a beautiful thing. And then we only had one Marx Brother book at my local library where I grew up in Sarah Modern, that was Son of Groucho, and that book became the Bible for me. I couldn't believe that there was a book written about Groucho Marx, and, and, and I fell in love with it. I did a book report about it in fourth, third or fourth grade, 1974. I don't know exactly when I read Groucho and Me, but I remember being delighted by it and loving it and, and feeling that uh, I was getting to know him in a, in a, on a different level. I'd seen him in the movies and on the TV show, and now he was speaking to me. And I was learning about his, his life. And I had a huge collection of biographies and autobiographies, and I created a Dewey Decimal System on my shelves. Literally, I would create my own little library cards for every book I had. I was obsessed with my, with my books and all my performing arts books, and of course that led to, to a real love for the arts in general. But um, So I, to, to answer your question, I remember, I can't remember the details of it. I, I was such an obsessed fan. 
it was one of several books that I was probably reading at the same time, along with Harpo Speaks and Son of Groucho. But I remember having Groucho's own singular voice before me. I, I loved hearing, reading him and hearing his sound as I was reading. And I, I, I liked that there was a gentler, I think as a boy, a, kind of a gentler uh, overall feel to it as opposed to the puncher in the movies or the wise guy in, the, in You Bet Your Life. There was something, a different quality. It was nuanced. He was, became much more human to me. And that, that really sparked even more interest. What, is, what more is there to learn? And I knew that this was, I wasn't learning a lot about his personal life or his family life, but we were getting little teeny little, little clues. So I think it was a great tease for me, and I felt also that he was a friend now that was with me in my, my room that I could reference at any given point, and that's what I've done. So that's, that's, that's my earliest impressions of, of Groucho and me is that I was getting to know a friend a, a little better, and, and not just a friend, someone I was mad about, obsessed about, and, and who gave me great, great joy and escape. I uh, I encountered it also very early on in my Marx Brothers obsession, and it was the second Marx Brothers book that I owned, and it was the first one that I deliberately acquired. Uh, the Adamson book was my introduction to the Marx Brothers because it was magically in my home before I was even born. So Groucho and Me was the first Marx Brothers book that I went out and got, and I remember... Um, running into it unexpectedly. The edition I have, and uh, Frank and I are both holding up our books here, uh, <laughs> podcasting being an essentially visual medium. We're, uh, but uh, what I have is the first uh, Fireside paperback edition, which came out in 1989, and that was, that was the year I saw my first Marx Brothers movie. I had known about them earlier than that from the Adamson book. But, and I ran into this edition of Groucho and Me at some random supermarket or drugstore. I can't remember exactly where, but it was just there. I was with my mother shopping, and in some uh, turning rack, you know, of new releases, there was Groucho looking at me. And I still love the cover design of this Fireside edition. It has uh, the the same photograph that's on his uh, barrel in the opening credits of Monkey Business. Uh, but it's one of those it's iconic for me because uh, it was, I guess, the second Marx Brothers thing that I possessed was this book. Um, and, yeah, just by virtue of being Groucho Marx's autobiography, of course, I loved it. And exactly the reaction Frank just described so nicely of just feeling like, you know, getting to spend a good long time listening to that voice telling his own story. Um, I loved it. And, you know, I could have almost indiscriminately chiseled out any sentence from it and told you why it was among the most brilliant things ever committed to paper. And when I read it now, I still have that reaction, you know, that reaction of just pure love for him and for it. I also have running parallel to that reaction, a more critical one, um, that, you know, when I read it as an adult, it's especially interesting to read it as Frank said, in its entirety now, rather than going to it to look up a specific detail. Um, and I can see there is also something sad about his his passionate, maybe desperate desire to be a great writer. 
um, the effortfulness of his prose, which is such an interesting contrast with the effortlessness of his work as a performer. You know, in writing, especially in this long format, you can you can see him sweat in a way that you never do when he's on screen, and I'm sure that was true on stage too. And there's a, so there's also something touching about that, and I assume we'll discuss the prose more as we get through this episode. But, you know, he opens the book with this beautiful dedication to, like, the greatest comic writers of his time. The dedication is, For what it's worth, this book is gratefully dedicated to these six masters, without whose wise and witty words my life would have been even duller. It's Benchley, Kaufman, Lardner, Perelman, Thurber, and E.B. White. And it's sort of like saying, first, I want to acknowledge my heroes, Pablo Casals and Yo-Yo Ma, and now I will play the cello. (laughs) (laughs) And I feel for him sometimes in the book the same way I feel for him when he gets kicked down the stairs in A Night at the (laughs) (laughs) Opera. Well, I'm the odd one out here then, because um, I I didn't come to it till pretty late, and I think my relationship with it has, has been conditioned by that fact very much like uh the way that i can see that a night at the opera is absolutely top draw stuff but it doesn't quite have the magic for me that the the first five films have simply because i i got to it too late the same applies here and uh, to prove it i have this rather nasty virgin books edition with an at the circus portrait on the front (laughs) and uh yeah when i first got into them I, i got harpo speaks straight away obviously adored that uh from somewhere my father acquired uh, a copy of um, arthur's first book which was just called groucho over here which i think had had been very badly water damaged and then left to dry because the pages literally crumbled away to nothing as you turned them and i would get terrible wheezing fits every time i I tried to read it uh but obviously uh, i i did persevere because every page was was a revelation so those were the formative ones and this one i you know i got late and i and i kind of took it for granted i don't think i read it from cover to cover actually until i was um researching my own groucho book just just a few years ago and uh i i think i I, i've been in my mind i've been very unfair about it for instance i always thought that it was published after Harpo Speaks and that it was kind of his his kind of frantic re reacquiring of territory, you know, that the the literary Marx brother had lost to the to the illiterate one and that the opening uh, chapter which which features a kind of a uh, a bit of a, a put down about as told to autobiographies was even a, a sly dig there at, at Harpo. I, I now know that that was completely unfair because it was published in 1959, sometime before Harpo speaks. Uh, so, so you know, as usual, uh, I, it seems to me Groucho emerges more sinned against than than sinning. So looked at, you know, in this in this more generous light. I do think it's very much a book of two halves uh, and that the first is much better than the second. But, you know, this is true of many books, including Harpo Speaks. I think it's his, his, his best book. I think it's his most relaxed piece of comic writing for the most part. I mean, I, I do absolutely know what you mean, Noah. You, can, you certainly can see him uh, struggling along with it. But, you know, I think there are, some, there are some pretty good jokes and some pretty good comic turns of phrase in there. I liked uh, Harpo inherited all of my mother's good qualities, kindness, understanding, and friendliness. I inherited what was left. 
Mm-hmm. Um, he, he says that his mother came from a town in Germany that had a population of about 300. This included four cows that had accidentally strayed there from a neighboring town. Uh, talking about Uncle Al, uh, he says, if you don't remember the famous catch line, absolutely, Mr. Gallagher, positively, Mr. Sheen, send me $10 in stamps. I won't send you anything in return, but send me $10 in stamps. Nice turns of phrase. Um, a, a backer is described as telling Chico about his wife and his mistress. And Groucho says he, he did this while blushing just enough to make himself repulsive. Um, <laughs> another backer has uh, an expression of indifference bordering on the supernatural. Uh, he says that uh, when they became famous, his father gave all his old clothes to his grandfather, who'd been dead for seven years. And, uh, <laughs> yes. And also that, uh, that Frenchie uh, took on a lot of um, affected uh, English uh, um, attitudes and phrases. And he says uh, nobody understood him, but nobody had ever understood him, so it didn't make too much difference. There's plenty of stuff like that that made me laugh. There's also a, a, an interesting running joke, isn't there? When any time he doesn't want to name somebody, he calls them Delaney. Yeah, it's similar to the Benson thing in Harpo Speaks, but with a different motive. Like Harpo mm. calls everyone Benson because he can't remember their names. <laughs> Groucho calls people Delaney to protect them. <laughs> and the funny thing is that from the truth. some of those Delaney's are, are, you know, couldn't be more obvious who they are. Yeah, right. so some, of them are some of them are genuinely mysterious, but some of them he may as well just have named because you know, it's obvious who they are. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. And the more we progress with it, with it, the more Delaney's there are, it seems like, in his life. Yes, yeah. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I started counting the Delaney's at one point. I, do, I, I, I don't want to derail us, but do you know who the Delaney twins are who became quite notorious? Is it the Cherry Sisters? Oh, yeah, possibly. That's a good guess. That's what yeah, I thought. Maybe. You know? And the Friars yeah. Club, I think, is, is the, what, the Delaney Club. We can go on. And Sam Goldwyn, <laughs> I think, is one. It's just so, that's, a whole, that's a whole podcast unto itself. But, um, <laughs> yeah. but what you're saying, Matthew, if I may interject, uh, there's some great lines in here. But, you know, I, I'm as... as uh, as an act, as someone who portrays, I'm looking for the little clues, and so I'm happy to share with those little moments. Or ah, I, I love the jokes, the stories. I mean, I found myself like laughing out loud, of course, and, and snickering. And but there are some moments. There are some. Some of the writing is actually breathtaking at times. You go, wow, that is that feels channeled or inspired. That comes from a, a, you know his very his very from quite right from a spirit. It's very much him. And it's unexpected. And he still surprises. That's another thing about him. And I think that's what I love about his humor and what, mo- what we love about it, that he, he always surprises. And the book has surprising moments, including, you know, the, the you know, jokes we've never heard, of course. Of course, in, the, in chapter one, if I may just jump in there, you know, of course, the, although it's generally known, I think it's about time to announce that I was born at a very early age. Of course, that's one of the great lines. That's in the first lines of it. So, I mean, he's got, and chapter one is... It's got tons of those. Anyone can, anyone can get old. All you have to do is live long enough. Lines like that are the classic lines. But I will also say I'm always impressed with his vocabulary, and I learned so much from him. That's another thing. I felt he was such a teacher for me. I mean, how many comedians are using the word meretricious in, in, you know, in any writing? And I had to go remind myself what, what exactly the nuance of that word. And I did that this, you know, the last two days rereading the book that I received an education from Groucho Marx. And right now, this computer is resting on his Random House Dictionary from 1973 that he kept. And his Arthur Marx, would, and that's crazy. And I'm looking at his encyclopedia to my right on his 
it's crazy on his uh, his book stand. That's an honor to have these pieces here, and that it reminds me of how Arthur would say, "Yeah, Dad, my father would, Padre would keep a dictionary in his glove compartment." And, you know, this this is all in my mind as I'm reading this book, and but I'm mostly learning from it, and I'm circling words. Uh, spavined is the word. Spavined, S-P-A-V-I-N-E-D. He says three times. Yes. In this book, which means uh, uh, swollen and decrepit. It's just kind of how he felt at the time he was writing this book at age 68. So anyway, I digress a bit, but I want just to give a little more context in terms of where I'm coming from when I, when I when I read this piece. It's you still feel his soul, his spirit, uh, and some some and, and there are also quite frankly chapters in here which I could have you know that don't do it for me when he starts talking about his sports life and and you know spends multiple pages Ooh. on his allergist and and seed corn <laughs> you know I mean it's, it's a you know I think this is an anti autobiography it really is an entertainment you know it, first and foremost and we could talk about that but uh, it's an anti-autobiography. It's what you would expect from Groucho, and I keep trying to put it within the context of the era of 1959, always when I'm reading it, in mm. terms of his language and attitudes, something that's yeah, definitely, I think. Definitely, if you're coming to it because you want to know Groucho's life story, you, you've got no chance. I mean, um, unless, I, unless, I, um, unless I missed something, which is possible, so I'll, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt, but unless I missed something, um, I think Zeppo uh, just suddenly appears in the narrative, doesn't he, with no indication of where he came from or, or when, uh, when he says uh, what we didn't know about, about cars, Zeppo knew. I think that's the first mention of Zeppo, and, and readers who are unaware of the age difference, as I imagine most readers probably at that that time would have been must have been incredibly confused that, that all this childhood stuff where Zeppo is not mentioned and suddenly he's there um, he mentions his marriages of course at one point and promises to address that in full later on uh, but when the subject is, is raised very near the end of the book it's just a, a, a comic essay about marriage in general um, right. He doesn't say where his children came from his own children no, either that's right. how about this he doesn't mention the names of his wives you don't hear. Mm. If I looked through it. Ruth isn't yeah. mentioned. Kay yeah. isn't mentioned. Eden is only mentioned within the captions of the photos. Yeah, yes. Mary, uh, she's, Mary. She's mentioned in the text, but she's preceded by her hair color. Oh, that's <laughs> right. <laughs> the most flattering oh, oh, so, way to bring someone on. So there was one one mention of her, right? I think at that point I was yeah. uh, I was drifting a bit on some of, and then he comes back with it's like kind of beautifully arced the book, and that then it comes back with the great stories. It's like a you know a best of, and, and, and which is terrific. He talks about my wife and he talks about his first wife, um, but, but nowhere does he make it clear, I don't think, that he's had three. And, and when he says uh, he's married no, with three doesn't. children, uh, no, no reader would imagine that, that those children were the children of two wives, neither of which is, is the woman he's talking about uh, as, as my wife. Um, right. It's quite deliberate. He, I don't, he didn't want to reveal he was married three times in 1959 yeah. when he's still in a top 10 rated show in 1950s America, right? And the, the other thing, obviously, that, that leaps out is that Melinda gets a chapter, Arthur gets a couple of anecdotes, and Miriam gets mentioned once in passing, mm -hmm. if you really insist on the details. Right. And what he has to say about Arthur, like the Melinda material, is very much rooted in Arthur's early life, you know, his mm -hmm. childhood, his teenage years. I mean, I think Frank is right on the money. It's partly, it's a PR move to present himself as the father of young children um, is truer to the image he wanted to have on television. And he also does pretty consistently skirt the personal throughout the book. Um, 
to the point where when he does sort of flirt with personal revelations, they seem to have a lot more impact than they do just because he's going there to any mm. extent. It's also interesting some of the things he leaves out of the Marx Brothers story, uh, not necessarily revealing, but, you know, he refers to the brothers by their stage names throughout the text, but never really tells the story of getting their names. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, yeah, he sort of brushes past it a little bit. And not having had the model of Harpo's book yet, you know, Harpo borrows some things from Groucho here, including some of the um, pseudonyms that Groucho gives people, the non-Delaney pseudonyms. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you have a, such a great point. When we do learn about him, it does stand out. And sometimes it's just a phrase. You know, I'm wary, or I, 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 you know, I was always a chicken. And, and it's funny, but it, he's really telling us a lot. You know, there was, a, there, was, there was cowardice, some cowardice there, and fear there. Certainly insecurity is, is, is present. You see that, you know, his lack of self-esteem when he talks about his physical appearance. I've, I've just noted this, and, and perhaps when we, if we go, I don't know if we, we can keep going like this, which is fun as hell, but if, I don't know if you wanted to chronologically take it on. We don't have to, whatever you... Yeah, let's, let's, uh, let's, let's get into it systematically then. Um, first of all, then, he, he talks about about writing the book and he kind of lays out um you know his, his plans for that um there's a quite a, quite a funny section where uh he, he discusses uh, his intention to give away a free fried egg and a sack of corn with each copy which he amusingly develops over over several pages um he uh he talks about um ghost writing and and makes it very clear that this isn't ghost ghost written which obviously is something that that he's very very keen to establish straight off the bat and he talks about truthfulness and concealment. So, so in a way, you know, he really is putting his cards on the table there, isn't he? Well, you're right. In, well, in chapter one, it's almost impossible to write a truthful autobiography, he says. The private thoughts that percolate through the minds of individuals remain in deep, dark recesses and never come to the surface. Uh, one could write a truthful autobiography, but to play it safe would have to be written posthumously. I mean, he's telling us you're not going yeah. to get the story. <laughs> There's, you're not going to get it, and, and he says he tells us in, in chapter one that, it, that uh, this is what this is what you're going to get, folks. It's pretty clear. And he also says I have I have no views that are worth a damn, no knowledge that could possibly yes. help anyone. I love that. The the book, uh, especially in these early stretches where he's very self consciously kind of writing about writing, writing about the book itself, mm-hmm. uh, it's sort of underlines the difference between truth and accuracy you know like i don't think there's much value in taking him to task for the accuracy of the stories he chooses to tell Mm -hmm. Um, as our friend uh, travis d has said about this book you know his job was to put on a show and Mm -hmm. to give an entertaining account of his life is a better priority for him than to get all the facts and figures correct. Mm-hmm. Um, we're very forgiving about Harpo and Roland Barber on that count, and Groucho should get the same courtesy. But there's, in, besides that question of like factual accuracy, there's this maybe larger question of truth. And sometimes in the book, he seems to reveal some truths, and, and sometimes he seems to very specifically avoid that. One thing that he possibly lets lets slip in an unguarded moment is is when um, do either of you know offhand when uh, the, their true birth dates were revealed rather than the the revised versions? That's an interesting question because I used to always go to the library and it would be it was always five years off until 
It must have been in the, would you think, in the 60s? I think even when they I died, the so. ages were off. I mean, Harpo's I age so. was... His age is, misre- is, is reported inaccurately when he passes away. Chico's is. I think Hector Arce might have been the first author to actually iron out the dates um, right. and accurately. The reason I say that is because in the, the anecdote about the, the, his childhood friend, the lawyer, who keeps telling him off for not getting a proper job, right. <laughs> uh, he, let, he let slip there that he was 37 in 1927. Oh. oh. Nice. Interesting. Yes. There you have it. Yes, Groucho is obviously very proud of having written every word himself and not worked with a ghostwriter or a, a co-author. Um, and I, I wondered, for the sake of argument, what if he had, you know? I wonder what kind of book would have resulted from Groucho sitting down with, say, Arthur Sheikman. I mean, he was friends with many very good writers who knew him very intimately. You know, like, would Sheikman have uh, helped prod a more revealing book out of Groucho? Because Harpo Speaks is no more accurate, but it is a lot more revealing. Right. Or even someone who can edit well. You know, if, you know, you don't, not necessarily a writer, but a, a great editor. I wonder who edited his material. Who did he mm. share this with prior to submitting it to, to his publisher? But editing. And there's some funny co- stuff about Bernard uh, Geist, right? His his right. publisher, not his right. editor, who says, uh, "Up to now, you've written eighty thousand words." You're right. Groucho right. says this will give you an idea of the sleaziness of this man. Right. <laughs> and and he and he skewers his publisher throughout the book, which is a, a wonderful running gag, along with the Delaney references. You know, I would even go back. Talk about this. I fell in love with Grouch all over again reading this book this week. And it, it really start. it's really the whole, that whole issue of struggle and survival, which is so beautifully demonstrated in, uh, in The Dresser. I love The Dresser with Ronald Harwood's book about, you know, the, the, you know, the freelance existence, the, the, the traveling performer's existence. And this is, a, this, I love the, that, like you mentioned, the first half of this book to me was so moving. And all the, all those stories with Groucho and Gummo and Cording and dealing with the theater managers, which we can get into, and Minnie's having, and, you know, meeting with them and, and at their home while Sam Frenchie is making this glorious meal, and all of that, it, and all of that's quite beautiful. Their camaraderie is, is quite moving, and the fact. You know, I, I had greater appreciation for Chico. Groucho's quite, how much he really, you know, it's one thing to hear a story or two, but you realize it's Chico who says, we should, we should be on Broadway, we should be on Broadway, we should be on Broadway, over and over and over again. And if everyone had someone like that in their lives, our lives would be different. And they were lucky to have this guy. And the fact that he is, it's, I'm going to, you know, Chico, he, 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 he mentions Chico in the same sentence as Euclid and Einstein in terms of that brain he had, the way he could crunch numbers and do percentages. Mm. Um, and I thought, I also thought it was odd that he was talking about his, you know, his compulsion, his, his compulsive gambling while Chico was still alive, still had a career, mm. still trying to get jobs, mm. trying to get work. I thought, I never had thought about that before, but that's not something maybe Chico would be so crazy. I wonder how Chico felt about that at the time, mm. reading these stories mm. about himself in this, or if he even cared. Uh, I'm sure he it did. It occurred to me too. Yeah. But I guess the the Kyle Crichton book had already come out, right? That's so like true. the idea of like Chico the Rascal was already in the ether somewhere. That's true. That's true. But maybe it's a different thing coming from Groucho. Brother. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
So having having established his aims, uh, he then uh, moves on to start talking about uh, his his childhood, his, his shared childhood with his brothers. Um, this has been largely familiar to to anyone who's read Harpo Speaks, although I think they are, I think they're largely different anecdotes here. Um, some details match Harpo's account. Obviously, we have Chico, the compulsive thief. We have Frenchie, the expert cook. Uh, other things are slightly different. Um, on several occasions, uh, Groucho speaks of Frenchie uh, administering severe beatings for misdemeanors, whereas Harpo speaks of him being too timid to and, and faking them. Um, we also have Frenchie, the careless hit-and-miss tailor, but I think not quite the, the constitutionally incapable one of Harpo and subsequent legend. There's, there's a couple of stories here, in fact, that involve him making perfectly decent suits for people uh, that unfortunately end up in a, in a, in a pawn shop, but, but which, which pleased their, their uh, recipient uh, perfectly well. Pop loved to laugh, is what Groucho says about, about Frenchie. And I remember hearing an interview, it was the Ennobly tapes i've heard them years ago and he talks about what a gentle man you know frenchy was and my father was a very gentle man and then but but i was but but what i thought was telling is that dad you know pop preferred the company of harpo and chico now that's a that's a major statement that's a pain that's a that's a hurt uh, because they all played cards, and you're not a real man if you don't play cards. I think, or pinochle, I think, is a line that's that's I'm paraphrasing. That's that's in there. But Groucho said, "Why play cards?" He preferred girls, reading, sitting on the front stoop. Just that means contemplating, thinking, taking it in, Nickelodeon cinema, and singing a, a quartet harmony. That was the where he lived, and I think, from my perspective, that's what I'm looking at. What is what is his pull? What makes him who he is? What what makes him different than Chico and Harpo and Pop? And how do you make up for that feeling of you know he was always lonely? That's a that's a that's someone who's lonely. That's a person that feels isolated, cut out, early on. And then we we hear about not in this book, but in other takes, and uh, how mom feels about him. How many you know places him within within the. Uh, Within the, within the, the love fest there or lack thereof, uh, he's not the the favorite as we 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 hear about. Anyway, so I thought that was interesting in chapter two, hearing about the, Groucho's relationship uh, with his father, with the brothers. That's a perfect example of a truth. You know, that's a truth uh, that isn't investigated but is revealed. Mm-hmm. That Groucho is separate. He's always in a very crowded, very noisy room, but he's separate and alone. Mm. Um, he does take care to include, I think, at least one good anecdote about uh, Harpo and one about Chico and one about Gummo. Is the story about Harpo walking a leopard in Harpo Speaks? I didn't remember that one. I think his story, yeah, I should have checked that too before we did this, but I think I he don't talks know about either. walking the dog. Yes. Walking the woman's dog. Yeah, um, that's, that was my memory, but I, I haven't yeah. checked. Yeah. So that's interesting. Yeah, especially since Harpo Speaks followed this. Did Harp- uh, there are times you you might say Harpo is correcting the record on certain points. Mm-hmm. Like Groucho has Harpo playing Fanny's harp, mm. and Harpo in his book specifically says, "I never played that harp." Wow. Yeah, there's something like I, w- that. I wanted to get back to Mom. I, Groucho marvels at his mother's maneuvers while you know with the booking agents. He said, uh, "It's a, her maneuvers were a triumph of skill, chicanery, and imagination." I love that yeah. so much. You know, imagine being a teenager 
watching mom in action working over these grizzled guys while there's Sam whipping up the meal. I mean, what a great visual that is. What a great, what an environment to you know, sneak to, to, to imagine. And I was also struck by the fact. I mean, obviously, she's such a she's a gift to any comic writer because she's she's such a she's such a, a ready-made comic character. So I was struck by the fact that he goes out of his way to also say that she was very beautiful. Yeah, and, and, and on more than one occasion, he does it. Um, yeah. Which, you know, in a way takes us to, you know, chapter three in which, uh, you know, mom has the wig and the corset. And, um, right, Minnie would wear this kind of, this kind of, he thought it was unattractive. And, and uh, but she, and then she when, she, when Minnie would arrive at a party or an event, you know, mostly family or friends, she'd take off the wig, take out the corset. The corset would be hanging out. Uh, and, um and they'd say, Ma, why do you do that? She goes, it's, it's an arrival. I'm making an arrival. It's so show business what she's doing. Once she makes the entrance, you can lose the accoutrements. You know? So uh, I thought that was interesting and very show busy. And um, anyway, I, I jump ahead a bit here, but we're, we were talking about Leif and Fanny, and that's coming up, I think, in Chapter 3. I think in general, compared to Harpo... Um he he does he he breezes through his childhood. I mean, the stories are affectionate, uh, but I, we sense a writer on his way somewhere. I think rather than stopping and and luxuriating in the past in the way that Harpo does. Yes, uh, that's v- very fair. Uh, Harpo's uh, book and uh, some of the credit for this undoubtedly goes to Roland Barber, uh, but Harpo's book does seem to be, um, you know, evoking a place and a time in a. I guess in a more literary way, um, Groucho's book—he's using his life as the fodder for this project, which is write your autobiography. But, but it's really surprising sometimes the degree to which, in writing this book, he was sort of writing his material for really for the rest of his career. You know, in so many of the other the later books, the um, scrapbook and the Groucho file and others, and the Carnegie Hall, even with Groucho, Mm. uh, you know, he tells this is kind of the more polished, more in some cases complete, and more sanitized versions of the stories he just kept telling Mm. from this point Mm -hmm. onward. The one that really struck me along those lines is when you think of how little he has to say about their films uh, and how much he, he might have said or what else he might have said. Mm-hmm. We get uh, one of the very, very few uh, stories about the filmmaking here. We get a very long version of the gorilla suit story from Out the Circus. Oh, my God. Which, Four is, pages. which is one that, that went into his repertoire, you know, till the end of his days, didn't it? Yeah, it's a perfect so, example. And you're well, right. Most of the Marx Brothers films aren't mentioned in the book. Even mm. in the vaudeville years, I, one sentence starts out, well, four years later, we miss a whole chunk yes. of, their, of their touring life. And I want to know right. what happens during some of those four years. Uh, mm. <laughs> okay, so he, he then goes on to discuss his career as a boy performer, as a solo. Uh, the one section of his life until the TV years that's all his. No brothers need apply. Um, obviously here, he exaggerates for comic effect, but... In its details, I think this is this is pretty accurate, isn't it? What talking about life on the road? Yeah, and and the you know the, the stories about uh, him getting stranded at various places. Oh yeah, with the the, the the Roy trio. It's interesting that that he I forgot that he actually discusses the fact that he made his debut doing drag, and he was wearing high heels and a dress and a hat and a wig, lips in you know, a makeup, 
I love the talk about all the talk about food. If you're starving, food is everything. And I remember, yeah. I think Harpo talks about it too quite a bit. Mm. But the fact that you travel with hard-boiled eggs and bananas, mm-hmm. and I think someone once mentioned the only thing that you were safe eating while on the road was hard, hard-boiled eggs, bananas, and coconuts because they all had, of course, covering. But I love that, and it also reminds me of that story that Harpo tells about uh, when they finally made it big and. He's at a restaurant, and the menu, the menu is handed to him, and he looks at it, and he goes, yes, and a cup of coffee. I love that. I love that story, but I digress. But I love the fact that, that there's this romance that he, even as, as awful as his, his time is on the road early on with Leroy and the fact that he gets, you know, he gets stranded, he, he still, he's, he's got the bug. He's, got the, he's mm. bitten by the, it's the, by the romance that is the theater. And I, I, it, of course, that becomes a recurring theme early on. I mean, we see it later with the, the Lily Seville character, the Miss, Miss Foster character, who takes his $65 out of his grouch bag. Uh, it's awful. It's just awful. Yet he's still, still in love with her. It, it's very interesting that, that as you say, he, he is the one with the bug, which the others didn't. He's the only one that mm-hmm. wasn't kind of corralled into, into being a performer, isn't he? And yet he's the one who, who wasn't kind of taught... To, to have performing skills. Mm-hmm. You know, Chico, Chico had piano lessons, which he kind of passed on in, in, to some measure to Harpo. Harpo obviously um, eventually became uh, fascinated by the harp. But, but Groucho is the one that just seems to have wanted to perform. Right. And he, self, he realized that it's poignant to me that he's self-taught on the piano. He's self-taught on the guitar. And that to me, and, and played until the very end. You see those photos of him in his, mm. you know, at 86, not 85, but at the very end. In 1987, you still see him at a piano. You see him at a guitar. And to me, it's very moving. The fact that Minnie was determined to get at least one of them, you know, those lessons. And she's there ready to strike Chico if he, if he is distracted <laughs> in any way. And uh, as Groucho says in Groucho and Me, it really should have been Harpo who got those lessons, and, which was interesting. He didn't say me. Though that, you know that's what he was thinking. Mm. <laughs> he says about his time on the road and being in, with Le- the Leroy Trio, people stared at me and I liked it. He discovered he liked it. Early, so I thought that was telling. That made him, it gave him a sense of, of being noticed, of, of uh, sec- whatever, whatever you want to call it, security, appreciation, importance perhaps, being noticed, particularly when you come from a family like that where m- perhaps you're not the favorite. I think that tiny little sentence, pe- people stared at me and I liked it. Because the spotlight is like the warm, friendly version of the alienation that he was feeling mm-hmm. all the time. You know, you're still separate and alone, but you're separate and alone in a positive way. That, you know, everyone appreciating you and, and mm-hmm. paying attention to you and waiting to see what you're going to do next. It's it, one of the things about him, isn't it, that he... I mean, he was prodigiously gifted as a performer, but he temperamentally was much more like a writer. Mm-hmm. And that sort of tension between those two things has so much to do with him, his character, his entire career. It's mm-hmm. interesting how the whole book is peppered with phrases that are also in the films and plays of the Marx Brothers, you know, that he he didn't wasn't officially the writer of, but... It is. It's not unthinkable that his vocabulary found its way into those scripts. You know, keep a civil tongue in your head. Um, mm-hmm. There's many throughout the book. You think, oh, that kind of rhymes with a, a line from one of the films. 
He even uses the word Schweinerei in the first chapter. You know? Right. Uh, what about his love for that fountain pen that he received? Mm. That's, that's, that's moving. It, and that it was this leaky fountain pen, but he can now write. It, to me, it was his, his, his most prized possession. And he, eventually he ends up having to sell it because they, they have to, they're so tired of eating the fish at that boarding house. Yes. That, 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 that the brothers kind of coerced him to selling the fountain pen finally, and they enjoyed some roast beef sandwiches. Um, but that, that, I thought that was a, a fun section, just seeing that interplay with the brothers. And the fact that he actually sold that pen also tells you something about the connection with those brothers. You know, I, I remember hearing those Anobili tapes much later, and he talks about, I remember Anobili asking, uh, uh, did, you, did you like Chico? It's something like, or did you love Chico? And like, after, this is after all those remarks Groucho was making at the time. He goes, of course, I love Chico. I, I, I loved him. You know, he was my brother. It was like, what are you talking about? Of course, it's like a given that he loves them all. And that the fact that he spoke to them daily, whether it was just like, how are you? Fine, click, you know, I think is quite beautiful and, and telling. And it, it really explains this uh, to a great extent their success, they, that communication they always had from the time they were boys. Mm. And, and that's a whole other subject, of course that spiritual connection that makes them unique, that puts them above anyone else of their time and this time, really. There's a lesson about inflation in there, too, because today you're lucky to get three or four roast beef sandwiches. For <laughs> That's the truth. <laughs> I should say as well that I, I love the um, the fact that when, when he's talking about his early engagements, um, he, he opens uh, a paragraph by very breezily saying, we played Victor and Cripple Creek without getting killed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's lovely. That's a good one. Um, but to go back to the, the grouch bag, which you mentioned, uh, that's interesting, mm-hmm. isn't it? Because he, he, he uh, explicitly says that that's not the source of his nickname. But he doesn't, mm-hmm. he doesn't uh, say it in the spirit of debunking anything. He doesn't say people think that this is the origin, but it isn't. He says, uh, naturally, you're going to think that this is the origin of my name, but it isn't. So I think that's, that's pretty, uh, pretty conclusive uh, uh, debunking of that, isn't it? Yeah. And yet people continued, including people as close to the source as George Fenneman, uh, continued to mm. explain the name that way in, in interviews. Right. You know, while we're watching, while we're reading about Chico pawning Harpo's harp and that ch- the fact that Chico spent you know, most of his time either in a pawn shop or uh, a boarding house or the f- crowded family flat, Groucho is, is honorable. I, I, he's trying to save money so he can buy... A coffee, a new coffee pot because their coffee pot leaks. He wants to buy his mother a coffee pot. I don't know why I found that so moving, but that's the way he thinks. He wants to be helpful. Mm. He wants to contribute. He wants to be kind to his mother. He wants to be loved. He wants to show love. He wants to be engaged. Uh, I thought that was moving. Yes, it was ten dollars. He wanted to get a nine dollar suit for himself and a one dollar right. coffee pot for his mother, but he right. wound up with one dollar instead of ten, and right. not a thought of spending it on himself. You're right. That's yeah. a lovely moment. I, I thought that tells me a lot about the young boy, the young man. That's he was fair. I think he was a fair person, and being around Miriam and and and, and Arthur as much as I was, you get that you feel that he was fair. It was flawed as we all are, but. He was a, f- a very fair man, and this is to me. This is he's also part- he's engaged. He cares about his family. He cared about his mother. He cares about his father. He cares about his kids. 
That's, I don't know how much of that's communicated in terms of the children. As we say, it barely mentions them except for the Melinda chapter. But uh, I thought that was moving. Right, so these are the kind of things I jot down. It's like, oh, yes, that's who this guy, this is the essence of this human. Mm. That that's, He's a caring individual who wants to make a difference within the household. I think on the other side of the ledger, um, mm-hmm. there's a moment, one of those between-the-lines moments that pops up sometimes in Chapter 5, he says, uh, the female of the species has always baffled me, and I have always regarded them as a race apart. <laughs> There's your problem, sir. Yeah, right. There you have it, right? <laughs> and then we have the Annie, Annie Berger slash Lucy story, which is yes. kind of, uh, very telling, right? Interesting uh, versions of that, isn't it? Like mm-hmm. In the Lucy version in the book, it's coconut candy, but Annie Berger mm-hmm. preferred sauerkraut candy. I remember, yes. On that basis alone, I, I, I prefer Lucy myself. Well, they're both great. Coconut and sauerkraut, great comedy words, let's be honest. <laughs> no um, doubt about it, yes. Right. But I, and I also was thinking about the setup for Uncle Al Sheen, uh, you know, that we hear about the failed Uncle Julius, Uncle Henry, Uncle Carl. What Uncle Julius, of course, leaves them, you know, they name him Julius after Uncle Julius. We all know the story. Uh, of course, he dies broke, and that's what Groucho gets. Uncle Henry, I think, uh, many owed a debt to, and that's why they gave Julius Henry, Groucho, the middle name of Henry. And then Uncle Carl was the, the chiropodist, right, who, who burned down hotels in the Adirondacks, right? <laughs> yes. And then, ent- enter un- uncles. and then enter Uncle Al. So there's a great setup for Uncle Al's entrance here. It, f- it feels very theatrically devised uh, from my perspective. It's like bomb, 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 bang! He's gonna, you know, Uncle Al's on the scene. <laughs> a big star in vaudeville tossing the nickels out to the neighborhood kids. And that left, as we know, such a, a great impression on, on the young Marx Brothers, particularly Groucho. It's also interesting, isn't it, how Uncle Al, the way he writes about Al Sheen, it's obvious that in 1959, Al Sheen and Gallagher and Sheen are still very much in the current, you know, in the zeitgeist. You know, he says uh, Mm -hmm. uh, the song, the Gallagher and Sheen song today is as much a part of America Mm -hmm. as baseball. I mean, Gallagher and Sheen had such impact that here, this is almost 40 years after their Mm -hmm. career. It's still that famous. Get this, Noah. I mean, I thought the same thing when when I read it, and then I realized Gall- uh, Gallagher and Sheen that that was theme was still used when I was a kid in the seventies yeah. and the eighties. You'd hear it in commercials. It was probably and I don't think it was public domain yet, but, but uh, it was used. So even then, twenty five years later, they were still part of the zeitgeist. Uh, crazy, really. Yeah. yeah. And I'm sure you've had the experience, Frank, hundreds of times, because I've had it a few times, of mentioning Gallagher and Sheen in front of an audience, and the elderly contingent of the audience still has that recognition of their names. Okay, from chapter 7 onwards, uh, his orbit begins to reintegrate with his brothers. We get the the Nightingale's years and the Mascot's years. Um, I I thought I detected a a kind of subconscious resentment of the fact here. Um, He describes Chico as a bad pianist, which I had not come across in many other places. Um, He also, in in a very strange aside, which is presumably a joke, but still a very, very odd one, uh, he says that Gummo was basically a peeping Tom. Well, I thought was what I thought was interesting is that uh, Groucho and Gummo were roommates, and they were they were very close. So if Groucho would know, um, <laughs> but uh, I thought that was interesting and, and how close they were, and that it was Harpo and Chico who were who were 
Rooming and, and Groucho and, and Gummo. Because we don't get a lot of Gummo, do we? So no, little, we don't. I, little crumbs of Gummo the, are always to be cherished, I think. Yes, we get Crumbo from Gummo. But um, <laughs> what I thought was inter- I'd like, and we'll get to it, is that whole automobile obsession that they have and how that represents success and courting and status and the fact that Gummo and Groucho are very much together in their pursuits of of the of the what they would consider the fair sex in, the, in that day or any sex would have been fine with those two it seems like at, at that point but th- those those adventures are fun and to see how they're bonded over their um, interest in the young ladies in the in the burbs of Chicago is fun and the whole story with with Zeppo is is interesting but but I'm jumping ahead but yes come on Groucho it interesting in this section in the chapter called A Wandering Minstrel Eye, he makes what I remember when I first encountered it as a child, thinking it was a remarkable statement. He says, as a lad, I don't remember knocking anyone over with my wit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, he spent his entire adult life knocking people over with his right. wit. And it's just interesting to learn, if we, if we take him at his word here, that it's not false modesty, right. that he developed his wit as a result of having to entertain audiences. Right. I, I love this chapter, chapter eight. He talks about, he says, what he says in the second paragraph, I believe all comedians arrive by trial and error. What a, what a thing. And, and for someone who's developed characters, anyone who's a performer, in the you get, that is, that's everything. The audience teaches you what to do. And, and it's, I call it at bats. And the only way to evolve and grow. Mm-hmm. And I thought, what a, I believe all comedians arrive by trial and error, I think is a... And then he goes on to, to talk about what that's like. In, that, in the paragraph above, he says, I'm a pre- another little clue, I'm a pretty wary fellow. I love that. Well, we know that about him, but I'm a, that tells you a lot about him, too. Again, yeah. write that down, Frank. <laughs> I love this paragraph, if I may, and the, at the bottom of... Uh, it's in the top of chapter 8, the third paragraph, it goes, in defense of, of his choice of profession... My guess is that there aren't a hundred top-flight professional comedians, male and female, in the whole world. They are a much rarer and far more valuable commodity than all the gold and precious stones in the world. But because we are laughed at, I don't think people really understand how essential we are to their sanity. If it weren't for the brief respite we give the world with our foolishness, the world would see mass suicide in numbers that compare favorably with the death rate of lemmings. I thought that's so great that, that he's come to that conclusion about his contribution to the world. I think it's a beautiful, beautiful bit of writing there. I wanted to share that. It's unusual how unself-effacing he is there. You know, he's really, it's a rare example of him saying, you know, our work is important, which he's usually disowning that kind of, that, that kind of thinking about the comedy of the Marx Brothers. Maybe it's because he's speaking for comedians as a community. Yeah. He feels a little bit more like he can speak in, in defense of and in um, uh, in applause of his his people, you know, comedy entertainers. I, I agree. In that same chapter, he says, at that time, the actor's position in society was somewhere between that of a of a gypsy fortune teller and a pickpocket. So, you know, a reminder of of how he spent his time on the planet is right right there. And isn't it interesting um, when he's talking after he's finished talking about uh, Red Skelton, which again is is a you know a very generous uh, section. Um, there's this this very prescient paragraph yeah. where he says, "Someday I'm afraid the eggheads will take him up and start reading social significance into his antics. Let's hope they don't, because this has ruined many a good performer." 
which makes me think, it makes me wonder how, how different this book might have been if he'd written it in 1970. Mm. Yeah, very interesting point. And yes, his advocacy for Red Skelton is surprising in some ways. Not that Red Skelton's not great, but he's really the only comedian, then present day mm. comedian, who Groucho goes out of his way to praise in the book. And I wonder if it had something to do with, you know, Skelton was great in a very different way from the way Groucho was great. Mm-hmm. And so maybe he felt comfortable being generous. That's a good point. There is certainly no competition in terms of the skills. Mm. They, they both have, you know, Har- he, I think Red Skelton lives closer to the world of Harpo Marx. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I like the, to- I like brash comedy. I like talking comedians. That's my personal preference. But it is, I, I, this is a, this is quite a thing for a comedian to, to do in real time for another comedian. It also follows the, the, the Chaplin line that he says about Chaplin. He refers to Chaplin as the greatest comic mm. figure ever spawned. That's, uh, yes. And then goes into Red Skelton and equates the two. Beautiful. I love Beautiful. his description of Chaplin visiting the brothel. And uh, there are mm-hmm. some fairly candid references to sporting houses and, and prostitution right. and, and other forms in the book. I love his description mm-hmm. of the Chaplin spending the entire night at the brothel playing on the floor mm. with the Madam's English bulldog. It's right. I love sweet. that, too. And 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 he 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 uses the word prostitutes in his writing. He doesn't try to to gussy it up, or there's no euphemism. It's right out there, and his view is a, he has an open view. Uh, it's yeah. I think fairly daring for the time. Uh, and then again, the sentence is again what I jot down as someone who is sharing his life. The, the average vaudeville actor led a lonely life. That says it all. So what does that mean? And uh, all they had were these sporty houses, these whorehouses, uh, the pool halls. That was, your, that was your culture. That's it. This, again, is something that, that, that struck me here. Um, I, I certainly throughout the book, I, I strongly get the feeling that he wrote it starting on page one and then worked his way through. Uh, you know, I, I don't think he, he, he kind of jumped ahead, did a bit here, did a bit there. I think he sat down over a succession of nights and, and just wrote the thing from start to finish. And as a result of that, uh, there are some interesting conjunctions. You know, I, I don't think it's coincidental that, for instance, that the obviously the, the chapter on insomnia follows the chapter on the Wall Street crash. Um, and similarly, uh, there was just something that mm-hmm. just struck me here because I have a nasty, suspicious mind. Um, but there's one, he has one kind of positive sex anecdote here which is a a kind of a a, a generic affair of him picking up a girl going back to her apartment the husband comes in he goes in the wardrobe he jumps out of the window so he doesn't actually go all the way with her but nonetheless um it's described as a successful pickup uh, and he quotes her saying very flattering things about him Mm -hmm. um he then says uh, that that he, he he went back to his lodgings uh, and, and all of his brothers were out, so he went to bed. And when they got in, he was not in the mood uh, for lengthy explanations. And then he says, "Little did they know." So it, it just struck me that his one successful kind of sex anecdote is one that that cannot be verified. Right. And then immediately after that comes the chapter about uh, sporting houses, where um, he includes a, quite a quite a direct kind of defense of legalized prostitution mm. so again here i think he he's telling he's telling us more than than the words are isn't he right and it is a victory and i'm, I'm jumping back to chapter nine for those who are following following along uh about his, his <laughs> uh, self-image and there's a great quote that i put down again 
that's I found find quite useful. Uh, they, they, this is the vaudeville touring years, the gummo, you know, gummo and Groucho going out with getting the gals. But this is interesting in, in, in regard to his self-image. My my speaking of his profile, his physical profile is going. My profile was nothing to brag about. I was five feet eight with a set of irregular teeth, a sallow complexion, a hangdog look, and a mass of unruly hair. I thought, wow. I mean, just that. I thought this. It says a lot. He says he was insecure about his appearance. So these moments do mean something when someone says, "Hey, you're a good-looking guy. You're a funny guy. You're a witty guy." And the, the, the and, you know, we were talking about their shenanigans in, in chapter eight. We're, I, I don't think we can emphasize enough the kind of conditions that they were dealing with as you know pre-union. You know, the conditions, the dressing rooms, the way he describes the, the grime and the. And the mildew in the in the of the dressing room is just mm. phenomenal. So I've, you know, I, well, I play some of those theaters that they've played uh, in in Red Wing and, and and Bozeman, Montana, and they're now all pristine. They've been the ones that have survived are, are beautiful. They, some of them still have the gas the gas fixtures, and you get a real sense of the ghosts. And literally, there's smearings of grease paint under some of the dressing tables, red, white, black, and and literally, my my knees have buckled. On several occasions, because you really are overwhelmed by the spirit of a place, you feel the ghosts. And um, but boy, when they were there in 1920, 1918, forget about it, or before even, you know, in Chapter Eight, and the theater managers. I don't think we can really say enough about how he feels about theater managers as as the villain. Uh, that 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 whole <laughs> them being dinged for Groucho smoking a cigar, uh, and no, no smoking the sign. The sign was about the size of a postage stamp. Uh, and Groucho, of course, didn't see it. And, and the brothers are there, finally, and they refused to go on because they, he, they were going to be dinged the $5. And there are those brothers with blackjacks in hand. And they carried blackjacks with them on the road. It was a violent, unsafe world. And there's... There's a lot of references to, to them having blackjacks, isn't yeah. there? Yeah. Yes, there is. Isn't it interesting that he describes himself physically, as you quote, Frank, he, he describes himself physically in this very self-deprecating way. Um, and yet when he's describing the brothers collectively as a group, he makes them very attractive. We were popular in sporting houses because we, we could sing and play music and we all had a lot of hair and... And there was some safety in, like, the power of the togetherness of the Marx Brothers as a team that uh, obviously meant a lot to him and had some role in helping him work through this alienation that was such a part of his outlook. Well, well, how, how true is that? I mean, that kind of that, that group kind of entity, that, that bond of brothers. Uh, I found it fascinating, the section that's around here uh, in those chapters in which Groucho talks about they always traveled with... A, a, a terrific singer. They always tra- travel with a great dancer or another comedian because they didn't quite think they were enough, that they needed that. And then that dancer, that performer, wants an extra 50 bucks a week. And in no uncertain terms, the Marx Brothers tell them uh, tell them what to do, as Groucho puts it, with four-letter four word invectives. <laughs> and... Uh, they went on that night after they, they lose their so-called star player. I think he was a singer who did Jolson imitations, if I recall, correct? He was like... Yeah, I think this is who Groucho in the book calls him Manny Linden, but I think we're really yes. talking about George Lee, uh, also That's known right. as Mo Lee. Yeah. Right. And so I found that fascinating. They boot, they boot him, and then they go on that night doing harp, 
harp bit, piano bit, Groucho singing, knocking each other off of stools and, and, and recovering, you know, great physical, well-timed humor, I'm sure, at, the, for, you know, at that stage of their careers. And the audience asked for an encore. And Groucho says, it was that moment that I knew we were the Marx Brothers. And that mm. that had meaning, it meant something, it stood for something. And that they didn't need anyone else but each other. I thought that was a wonderfully profound section there, and it, quite fascinating. That's as certainly as, as good a story as any, mm-hmm. isn't it, about how that transition occurred. I mean, I, I think it's lovely that because they didn't have that singer, he says they had to do the song themselves, but they, they, just, they weren't up to doing it straight, so they spoofed it mm-hmm. and found the magic formula. I mean, whether that's true or not, I don't care. That's, a, that's the perfect story. Isn't it's it? it's got to be at least a little bit true, but another little dimension to this story is that in Four of the Three Musketeers, Robert Bader builds a very convincing case that when these supporting players were ejected from the act... George Lee slash Manny Linden. Same is true of Mabel O'Donnell. They tended to be ejected from the act after getting very good reviews, getting very good reviews <laughs> relative to the Marxist reviews. There was, I think, some element of, ah, this is our act. Okay, kids, you're getting too big. Well, it's interesting. And I think we could, this kind of leads us into that sense of competition that Groucho has, which he is extremely competitive. And uh, we were, ta- I don't know if we, I think we were off the podcast when we were talking about this. No, we talked about no actor wants anyone else to be a bigger hit than he is. <laughs> and he, they're, 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 they're complete fighters. They're, they're, they're fighting to the death, these guys. And uh, it, it leads into the story of the Delaney sisters and stealing their falsies so that their bodies aren't representing what young men are imagining they will be. Uh, but they, but uh, he is, he's highly competitive and, and it takes a certain glee at seeing maybe the uh, failure of, of, of peers at times, at which uh, it's not an attractive quality. <laughs> yeah, he says everybody secretly ha- has at least some degree of, of uh, pleasure at seeing their friends fail, doesn't he? Mm. Which, you know, I'm sure is actually true, but it's, it's, it's very uh, a brave thing to say, I think, in a, in a showbiz memoir. Yeah, in a book where he usually seems to be going out of his way to be avuncular and, you know, fairly mild. I mean, it's not a terribly barbed Groucho we get in this book. No. An interesting thing I just want to throw in, because it's in this general section of the book, what do you think of when he's talking about cigars? He says, I thought they made me look manly. With one of those in your mouth, there was no chance of your being mistaken for a girl. It's such an unexpected explanation for one of his greatest trademarks. It was so nobody thought he was a girl. <laughs> well, uh, back to back to self-esteem. What people thought yeah. about actors there, where you were, and this is a man whose first uh, entree into show business was doing drag, wearing lipstick and and rouge. Yeah. And I'm sure that his sense of identity this helped him feel like like I, I jotted that down too. I thought that was a fascinating little tidbit that that he shares with us. And then that goes into the 30 minutes of Havana pre- preferencia story. Yes, about, yes. Know, which is kind of a classic story about trying to get 30 minutes out of that cigar. You expect but, um, him to have the usual he, line about cigars helping with the timing of jokes. That's always right. the explanation right. for the comedy cigar. Mm-hmm. I think when he was, you know growing as a, as a young performer as well I think in the more straight-laced sections of, of the country he would have been uh, familiar with the idea that 
uh, women who go on the stage are essentially prostitutes and, and boy singers are probably gay. Mm. So I, I suspect mm-hmm. he's rebelling against that to some extent as well, isn't he? Uh, likely, likely. And, you know, while we're talking about, how about the story? You know, I love the reading about playing college towns in Ohio and in Illinois because I play all these towns and, and I get what he's kind of saying. This is Midwest. Uh, I remember the first time I worked in the Midwest, it's like, this is... In the 80s, there was a lot of young people who were drinking and taking drugs. People are bored. There's nothing to do in the areas I was in. And I, I got to experience that. I got to experience a lot traveling on the road. It was a bit of a vaudeville. It still is a vaudeville experience. But the story about playing one college town where the fire department had to be called in to hose down the male members of the audience who were trying to, <laughs> I don't know, kidnap the eight chorus girls in the show, performers in the show. I thought that was unbelievable. There were hundreds at the door, but what else was going on in town in 19-whatever it was, turn of last century? Mm. I thought that was incredible, but that they had to protect the girls, another reason to have those blackjacks, and that that was entertainment, and they were, you know, an audience of young male students were worked up to the point where they were going to, I don't who knows what they were going to do with these young ladies, or slash, performers slash prostitutes, um, and I thought that was fascinating, actually. Mm. Uh, and then there's the Groucho mustache story comes up in this section, uh, you know, which Arthur tells it one way and takes the credit for it. And then uh, yeah. Groucho tells it another way. You know? It's interesting that uh, although Harpo Speaks had not come out yet, Arthur's first book had already come out when mm-hmm. Groucho and Me was published. And there are, there are some interesting, I don't know, there are things that we could interpret as little points of friction or conflicts. Mm-hmm. He re, yeah, retelling the mustache story, but not making Arthur a, a motivating factor in it. Right. Um, there's also something, I mean, we know from Arthur's later book, you know, that there was all that tension over the footnotes that were, mm-hmm. you know, kind of ghostwritten for Groucho in Groucho's voice. Right in the original Life with Groucho. And, you know, there are times in Groucho and Me where you think, oh, is Groucho kind of elbowing Arthur and saying, hey, look who's a footnote now, kid, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's funny, though, later Groucho would, was, would brag about that book and, and would promote the book. So he, there certainly was a shift there. Yeah, I guess it was complicated. Yeah, it was. It really was. And it, and it evolved, you know. Even to the end, Arthur, I saw Arthur from, from the ni- mid-1950s, Arthur, to 2011 when he passed I saw how he mellowed in terms of his take on his on his father and mm-hmm. it was moving to have a front row seat to that um, this is life this is how we all are with our people that we love in our lives mm-hmm. So now he moves on to their, their mature careers. Uh, we get a bit about Broadway. We get a little bit about the films. Not much about either. Um, su- surprising omissions on, on both counts. Nothing about Walcott, for instance, although mm-hmm. uh, Harpo Speaks hadn't, hadn't come out yet. Uh, but something that only struck me uh, much later on, in fact, in, the, uh, in that bizarre chapter about fishing... Uh, where he, he tells an anecdote that, it, that just happens to involve Irving Brecker. And it suddenly struck me then that despite that long list of, of, of dedicatees, including uh, Kaufman, he has almost nothing to say about, his, about the writers, does he? No, but yeah. uh, he mentions... George Kaufman, his name is dropped a few times, which is interesting when you th- consider that he doesn't mention Ruth or Kay, his, his wives or Miriam more than <laughs> once. So Kaufman, you know, I started doing that. It's like, oh, yeah, this tells me what he felt about George S. Kaufman. But there's not a lot of detail 
uh, there. There's the talk about mm. the Irving Berlin and writing and the the work on the yeah, coconuts. Yeah, big section on Berlin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, and about the fact that there was no hit song. You know, the, the story about always being cut by Kaufman, etc. But that's a good point. I, I, I was hoping for more, actually, in those le- those, la- those la- later mm. chapters. I thought we'd, I'd love to have heard more. more I kept thinking I'd like to hear more about the people in his life because that'll tell me a, mm. more about mm. him, how they respond to him, how he responds to them. It to me is more interesting than hearing about his life as a golfer or a tennis player, or a fisher or someone who's on a cruise line. Uh. <laughs> is the story about Ginny the bad dancer true, Noah? I think it, it's one of those stories that it could have a grain of truth to it, but it's largely fictional. It certainly isn't the reason right. I'll Say She Is was produced or or the reason right. um, James Bury, who both Groucho and Harpo in their books call Herman Broody, uh, he was actually a coal magnate, a Pennsylvania coal magnate, who already had a lot of background as a theater and film producer by the time he got to the Walnut Street Theater and and I'll say she is. Uh, Groucho and Harpo both make him a pretzel salt manufacturer. And I I think in doing so, they invent the whole concept of pretzels having their own specific kind of salt. Uh, A a New Jersey pretzel (laughs) salt manufacturer. There may have been some dalliance with a chorus girl and this producer. And in some versions of the story, Harpo is also fooling around with the same chorus girl. And like, there could well be some truth to all that. But I'll say she is was already being produced years before that happened, and if there was a chorus girl, it's incidental, right? And it's uh, so much of this is apocryphal, and and yet he's so specific about the the scenery pieces that are used in I'll say she is. He names yes. the show, so it's yeah. like on one hand he's very particular, on the other hand you know that this is storytelling and a, most likely apocryphal. I mean, I, I had the same questions like. How much is this really happening with with Ginny, the the chorus girl? And it, it makes for a fun story, don't, don't, you know, that's for sure. I think he's conscious of it. Like even with the story about cutting always from coconuts, that's apocryphal. And there's a letter Irving Berlin wrote Groucho a letter, I believe, in the fifties prior to this book coming out, saying, mm-hmm. "Why do you keep telling people it was cut from coconuts? I wrote it for my wife, you know." And, uh, and uh, but here he is in the book, you know. Uh, not only am I going to print the entire lyric of "Stay Down Here Where You Belong," I'm going to keep yes. keep telling people always was cut from coconuts, and and as we said earlier, that was his job was to tell a good story. If the book had come out today and he was alive, there would be a DVD insert or a link to the song. You know that. So yeah, uh, I want to say on chapter 14 he starts talking about his writing, which I thought he goes, "I wanted to write. Nothing I did as an actor thrilled me more." And he refers to ad-libbing as writing, that it started out live on stage and then it became set, which is something that I can identify with as someone who develops material. And it's to me, I loved all of that. And that's the same section as the Irving Berlin section. But certainly worth noting that about halfway through, he talks about his passion for writing and how that meant that was everything, as you've said earlier, Noah. And then we get to the critics and Leonard Dobbins, the lawyer, that's all in that the stock market crash yes. is all in, in that mid right in the middle of this this telling and insomnia as you mentioned Matthew follows the the crash yeah which is interesting I, I wouldn't expect um, Groucho to you know go into detail about this but whenever that story is told you know 
that Groucho had this lifelong insomnia as a result of having been wiped out in the crash of 29. And, you know, there are, there are two complicating factors in that story, one being that he mentions insomnia prior to 1929, too, in some of his early magazine writing. Um, it seems like he already was having some struggle with insomnia. In fact, in his first or second piece for The New Yorker, he talks about how... Um, to get to sleep at night, he prefers counting money to counting sheep, which is a strange kind of preface to the later story. Another thing that gets left out a lot is, you know, just less than a month before the stock market crash, Minnie died. You know, their mother died, like mm. right before the stock market crash. And I've never seen any connection made between these two things in any Marx Brothers Mm-hmm. memoir or literature but how could that how could their reaction to the crash not have been somewhat affected that they were still in the aftermath of losing many yeah, and mourning yeah that's yeah a great point and, and and in that same area of this book he starts he spends a lot of time talking about drinking and prohibition and the impact that drinking has on his colleagues his friends writer friends and we know who he could be speaking about there but he never ever talks about the drink. You know, certainly he's not going to mention Ruth or Kay or Miriam. Mm. Uh, but but it's interesting how much how much time how much how many paragraphs are devoted to drinking. And he wasn't even he was a teetotaler basically by his own admission. Yeah, it's a whole chapter, isn't it? Yeah, and I feel he's dancing around certainly what mm. is a major issue in his personal life at that moment when he has a daughter who's just got, been released from Menninger's clinic and. Who's Mar- you know, who's Miriam that year in '59 was just separating from Gordon Allen, who was, she met at that clinic, and he's still paying alimony to Ruth, who's, you know, still drinking, and Kay is drinking still. It's a. Uh, I thought it was actually interesting to read that piece. You know, maybe if it was written today, or it'd be a different story. But the, the story is what he wants to share, and he gets to. But I feel like he he feels compelled to somehow touch on the issue and the damage mm. it does and and the impact yeah. of alcohol without yeah. telling how it's impacted him personally and it is at this point isn't it where the, the book changes gear and the, and it stops being a kind of a chronological history and becomes uh, a, a series of chapters on a theme so we have the crash then we have insomnia then we have prohibition um whereas you know the first half is a, is a, a reasonably coherent if if speedy mm-hmm. canter through the early life and, and career from from here on it kind of becomes a series of standalone comic essays, mm-hmm. um, of, often with a with a with a pretty tangential link to the to the autobiographical thread. So after Prohibition, for instance, we have um, a, a strangely sort of cluttered, unfocused chapter that begins with a very long anecdote about um, a famous unnamed actor who uh, was afraid of flying. He says he appeared mainly in pictures about flying, which rings no bells for me. I've no idea who that could possibly be, it, but we get what, several pages of that. Is it Buddy Rogers? Maybe? We, we, I'm not sure who it is either. I couldn't figure it out. Did you know Noah? Yeah. No, I'm just starting to... I, I thought of Buddy Rogers, you know, but... Yeah. Yeah. Right, Mary Pickford's... Right, wasn't he in... Who was in Wings early on? Yeah, that's... I was just thinking about Wings. That's Buddy Rogers, isn't it? Yeah. And no longer become... It's, again, another great act of deflection. It's no longer about... It's yeah, not about show at all, right? He's uh, he's uh, talking about the uh, insecurities and the uh, yeah uh, of, of someone else. 
But then from there, we get um, Paramount objecting to his grease paint that, uh, back in 29. Then we leap forward to a story about You Bet Your Life. And then we get the, the At The Circus Gorilla. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> was he getting bored? I mean, he, he seems to be speeding up here, doesn't he? <laughs> Much more yeah. interested in talking about his current success with the quiz show than in mm-hmm. his past work with the Marx Brothers. Yeah, and we get we get the you know the Thalberg stories, and we get the Warner Brother letters, and we get the the filming of Casablanca and his uh, announcing his retirement. All that gets kind of put in there in a in a, a few pages. He talks about Delaney saying uh, sell him a load of clams. <laughs> yeah, yes. <laughs> The Thalberg section mm-hmm. is the Thalberg section is very interesting, isn't it? Because it, it predates the Great Duck Soup revival. So we, we mm-hmm. have Groucho uh, very firm in his conviction that that they they basically made a night at the opera, a day at the races, and some other films. Mm. Um, he uh, he 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 sets out to prove uh, Thalberg's genius by by providing a list of eighteen films, about half of which I suspect would would mean nothing to any but the most specialist film buffs, and several of which are now recalled if at all. Uh, somewhat derisively, the half as funny, twice as good story is told with absolute approval uh, and followed up, obviously, with the well-known story of them uh, stripping Thalberg naked and forcing him to eat burning potatoes. Uh, but there's, there's no doubt, there's no doubt of his, of his sincerity here with, with, with regarding Thalberg, was he? I mean, he really was sold on this guy. I mean, obviously, some of it perhaps is flattery that Thalberg was responding so positively to him, but but it, there's obviously a very very genuine uh, um, bond here, isn't it? That he's he's talking about. Yes, uh, he quotes Thalberg interestingly, and it's it's more Thalberg who I'm responding to here rather than Groucho. But he quotes Thalberg as saying, "I don't want my name on the screen because credit is something that should be given to others. If you are in a position to give credit to yourself, then you don't need it." It's like, oh, it gave me a moment of like, oh, wow, well, Thalberg actually was an extraordinary person and a kind of genius and extremely uh, succinct and expressive. And magnanimous. Yeah, right. Like, oh, what a guy. And we've gotten used to being, to some extent, Thalberg detractors here in the here in Marx Brothers land. But uh, okay, Thalberg was uh, a, a major figure, wasn't he? Yes, and because I'm so familiar with these stories, I tend to these I tend to kind of uh, thumb through because I know them so well, but, yeah. and I and I know the Warner Brother letters. But I felt like it was time for I think he feels it was time for some out and out entertainment, and that's when the Warner Brothers letters kind of hit two thirds in is what we are rough close. But in stark contrast to Thalberg, uh, we we also get a, a portrait of of another producer uh, who he calls a large, soggy man and describes <laughs> as pretty much useless, physically repulsive, <laughs> perpetually drunk and belching. Uh, I mean, th- this can only be Mankiewicz, can't it? Yeah, I, for some reason I didn't think about that when I was reading it, but yeah, that must be. I, I presume it's an incredibly unflattering <laughs> portrait of Mankiewicz. Because it's a producer. The other person you might describe that way might be Al Bosberg, but he's talking about a producer and not a writer. Yeah. Right. I would think about Max Gordon when Max Gordon, how he used to chew his food. There's that whole thing about this, the smacking and the uh, the chewing. It, it just the unpleasant experience of eating yeah. with Max Gordon came to mind when I was reading that. <laughs> and then I thought maybe it was one of their later producers that he despised, you know, one of the later where I kept trying to think, is it someone from Love Happy or uh, uh, Lester I, I Cowan? I couldn't narrow it down. I, yeah. I got the feeling that it was somebody that he had a, a, a much 
deeper and longer acquaintance with than mm-hmm. those who he, I think he thought of as, as kind of irrelevant fly-by-night characters. You know, I think this was one of the team's producers, you know, like a key name was the mm-hmm. impression I got. And it does, you know, if you wanted to be incredibly uncharitable about Mankiewicz, it does fit. Yeah. You know? <laughs> it's an interesting, <laughs> isn't it, that some of these, um, the classics here, maybe weren't classics yet. The Warner Brothers correspondence or things like the chapter where he goes through some of his greatest hits. I don't want to belong to any club that'll have me for a member. But, you know, even the Groucho letters hadn't been published yet when this came out. But that's a great point. This may be the first time the Warner Brothers letters have ever been publicly uh, printed. Uh, They were probably in newspapers and magazines in 1946, but not in a book form, not something that stays on the shelf permanently. Right. That would have been available to the masses in such a a way. I was thinking on... uh, um, I wanted to jump back to uh, chapter 17, if I may, quoting from Mr. Marx. Uh, he, he talks about his publisher. He, just a little interruption here. I thought I'd a little break in. He, uh, the publisher says, he insists he can't build a book as an autobiography unless I tell something about myself. Frankly, I, I can think of much spicier subjects. So even then, the pub, I love that this is a reminder from the publisher. Would you get on with it? Tell us something. Share something about, about who you are. It's great. Yeah, you get the feeling that he was he was sort of handing in chapters as he was writing them, wasn't he? And he was getting this feedback. Uh, that's the feeling I, I get. And we're, and Although we're, it's it's ironic that the the next chapter is is probably the most irrelevant one of all, which is an, an absolute standalone comic essay about doctors mm-hmm. um, that I think was surely written separately and and crowbarred into up the word count. And he just had four pages on on an allergist, <laughs> right? Yes. <laughs> it's four. And then that's followed by what? Uh, love, right? The marriage love. chapter. Yeah. There's a great line in that chapter. The loneliness is responsible for more, uh, for more marriages, than, basically, than sex. Loneliness being a theme throughout, you know, from the very beginning, early on. There it is again. Every time I see that word, I thought, okay, he's, yes, he's a lonely fella. But on the whole, I think the chapter is remarkable, isn't it, that, that it, for how little he manages to say about his own, his own marriages and his own relationships mm-hmm. in relation to the length of the chapter. It's quite, it's quite a feat. That's true. <laughs> the most revealing thing he says in that chapter, I think, isn't even about the subject of love and marriage. It's when he says, having spent a lifetime in show business, I've always had an awesome respect for the clock and the virtues of punctuality. <laughs> what, it, what a point that is. Uh, you boy, are you tuned into what time it is when you have to go on? Right. I I, w- I was just look, looking at my notes and uh, I want the the drinking section. I wanted to just jump back there for a second. There's this I thought the kind of a pertinent little section here that I wanted to share. He says uh, this isn't a particularly novel observation, but the world is full of people who think they can manipulate the lives of others merely by getting a law passed. There are large groups in America who, if they could swing it, would prohibit the use of everything that didn't personally approve of. Smoking, drinking, dancing, going to the movies, eating Italian salami, and if it could be regulated, even love. What a great paragraph. Yeah. That's, that's evergreen, if you ask me. It never changes. Yeah, that's almost written for a, a dormitory poster uh, in 1967, <laughs> isn't it? Right? Yeah, yes, yes. Yeah, much better than, than a lot of the uh, fake Groucho quotes that do end up on yes. uh, on on internet. You know, that, why don't we see that one as an internet meme? This Absolutely, is great holds up today. You hear us, listeners? Get out there and meme that quote from Groucho. And <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Groucho and meme. 
Oh, there it is. Yes. <laughs> we got there. <laughs> it took a while. It, well... <laughs> So next up is the is the chapter on Melinda, um, mm-hmm. uh, but again, it, it's basically one long anecdote about her having a party. There's nothing mm-hmm. there about her theatrical aspirations or, or his theatrical aspirations for her or, or any of her appearances on a, on her show or anything. It's, it's you know it's just a story about her demands uh, um, for a party for her friends. Nonetheless, um, what must Arthur and Miriam have thought? Uh, when they contrasted their uh, little poultry mentions with a whole chapter called Melinda and Me. Uh, I think here we, we see the, the, the thoughtlessness of Groucho. Um, and, and it is thoughtlessness, I think. I, I don't detect any vindictiveness here, but, but real obliviousness to, to how crass he could sometimes come across as. It's well, very I think, similar I think it, to... Now, please go no, ahead. Say, I was going to, to reference you, Noah. It's good we clashed at that moment because we're both uh, on the same page, probably. Um, I, back to with this being a bit of a PR moment, and the reason that Melinda was often on the show was to make him seem like, uh, you know, a fuzzy father, and, you know, a likable, yeah. warm entity to offset the, you know, the, the, old, the old lech. You know the eyebrow waggling <laughs> comic. I guess also there's there's the the implicit um, reflection of his of his own virility, isn't there? That, that, that a man of his mm. age would have such a young daughter mm-hmm. and young wife. He t- yeah. th- there's that story about him going on a date. He's 30 years older. That awkward moment with the mother having to deal yes. with with the mom, and she's basically a gold digger. The young lady that he's is that Daisy. That's the the woman named Daisy. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah, you know, an interesting thing about that chapter, it ends well. I, I agree with you about the kind of superfluousness of a lot of this stretch of the book. But at the end of that anecdote about this girl named Daisy, he says, you know, basically some people had all the luck and love. But as for me, I always pick the daisies. And it's mm-hmm. like, there's a button. A lot of the essay-like right. chapters in this book, they kind of dribble out at the end. And you get the sense right. of, well, I'm out of things to say about fishing, so now right, doctors. Right, right. <laughs> but he actually right, ties right, right. up that, that love and marriage chapter kind of nicely. Right. I, I agree. But it's funny. I'm looking at my notes on chapter 23, 24, 25, and there are no notes because uh, <laughs> I, I just wasn't as interested in, in, until we got to – that was the – what? That's golf, tennis and golf and, you know, the hole-in-one story has been well <laughs> – Told, yeah. uh, you, know, with, you know, you know, Marx joins the immortals with a photo of Bobby Jones and Walter Hagen. You know, the whole, and then the, of course the, uh, the the press comes back the next day and he takes a twenty-one on the seventh hole. You know, after, yeah. after having after having shot a hole in one the day prior. I mean, that's a great story, and, it, and Arthur tells it one way, and Groucho tells it another, and it's 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 funny. But that's that to me is the that's the cream of that chapter is that is that particular story. Um, but it, it does peter out a tad, I have to say. You know, and uh, but but when we get to chapter twenty six, it's hallelujah time. I just have twenty chapter twenty six, yay! Exclamation point. <laughs> Happy to have gotten there. I think it's certainly true that the book does does kind of go haywire at this point, isn't it? I mean, Harpo speaks stalls, doesn't it, with Walcott? It kind of it kind of just it, its rhythm changes. But here, you know, we we get a, a chapter on sport, then we get one on seasickness. Then we get one on fishing. Um, uh, it is, uh, but as you quite rightly say, it, it's at chapter twenty-six that, that things uh, get very interesting again. We got we got a chapter called "Foot in Mouth Disease," which mm. is basically a, a kind of catalogue of, of of Groucho's greatest hits. Uh, you know, as we said before, before they really were greatest hits. We get 
I don't want to belong to a club. We get Mr. Marks, you just said the secret word. We get Samson and Delilah. We get putting Smuggler on the uh, on the customs form. And we get, I thought you were a fellow I knew in Kansas City. Um, there are two interesting omissions here, though. One that surprises me and one that, that doesn't and, uh, and I think is telling. The surprising one is that we don't get the, the segregated swimming pool. Uh, mm-hmm. Can they go in up to their knees? Um, that one's not there. Uh, but also, of course, we don't get the cigar joke. Which you know, I I I don't think um, it would have I would have put it past him taking credit for even if it wasn't true, um, but the fact that he doesn't even mention it makes me suspect that it wasn't even in the ether at this point. Right, interesting. Going back to uh, well, of course they, they are quite sanitized. The Samson and Delilah stories, like well, I forget what yeah. the exact line is. I mean, it was like uh, I, I wouldn't want to see. I don't run into see a film in which. Uh, the leading lady's bust is larger than the leading man. I think what, that it was a, a, a victim of Chisnockers are much larger than Hedy Lamar. You know those. It gets a little. It gets crasser as his filter starts to to fade away. And, yes. and uh, same with even not saying Jesus Christ. You know when he gets when the priest bumps into him with a cigar, yes. he goes uh, and uh, about the light of the dollar cigar, and the priest bumps into me. I bend over to pick up the cigar, and I said, he says, "Oh hell here." But you sh- you can't say Jesus mm. Christ. In fact, I was getting complaints up until recently. You know, I I get them when I tell that story. You'll hear you know, if I'm playing the Bible Belt. If I'm when I played Overland Park, Kansas, we got letters. He should not take the Lord's name in vain. You can't don't say Jesus Christ. So there's no question why he doesn't say Jesus Christ in 1959 mm. to the general public of the U.S. It does very much change the story, though, doesn't it? It, it makes it a completely different story. The, the, the priest saying that, out saying you just said the secret word. I mean, it's, it's yeah. just, it's a, very, it's a rather acute story uh, in, it, in its proper form. It, it, it's odd in this version. Mm-hmm. Very true. The absence of the swimming pool anecdote is interesting. I can't explain it. And if there were no references to Jewishness in the book, we could say, well, I guess he didn't want to put that in. But he does. He right. talks about his bar mitzvah right. and, you know, he, he's not hiding his Jewishness. Uh, yeah, I wonder why. I wonder when that story is first published and shared. I don't remember hmm. the source. Does it, you, either one of you remember? I th- is it, is Arthur? it Arthur? I think it might be in Arthur's book. With And I think oh. Arthur maybe makes it about himself instead of about Miriam right. as it usually is right right and it's funny I just I'm just I'm going back to when I'm doing the show again and next year I'm going to go back to the Miriam version because it was it really was Miriam if it happened at all yeah if it happened and it could be apocryphal that's that story we don't know really but it's a great story <laughs> Maybe you're onto something there, Matthew, though. Maybe, although the story could have been out there already, it had been told, but maybe it wasn't quite one of the greatest hits yet. Hmm. But that's a, this is a, such a fun, I just put funny stories. It's a great chapter. And you, 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 you can't help but end with a big smile, and you, you laugh out loud during hmm. this. He's one of the few people in history who can get away with just quoting himself like this. Like It's like, <laughs> here's another time I said something really funny. That's true. (laughs) Even Abraham Lincoln, you know. Right, that's right. Uh, Chapter 27, he says, spavined for the third time. (laughs) We got to look this up. Swollen, decrepit. Right. And then he gets into his finances again, which I think we haven't really touched upon enough because that damn is not a theme throughout his life, all the particulars. And if you read the letters he writes to, to Miriam when you have, both of you, 
I mean, it's nothing but I sent you eighteen dollars and twenty seven cents for that coat. Mm. I mean, it's all about about money and 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 how about the insurance policy story? I thought that I forgot about that. Where he, he you know, he, at the height of his career, and I think during a day at the races, all those, all the all the extras were former so-called stars, like fifteen mm. out of twenty. And he, his worst fear is to wind up doing extra work and being broke and losing his fortune. And he goes out and yeah. buys this policy that's going to insure him what eighty dollars a week for the rest of his life. Yeah. And he still he had it for decades. And it, he said he slept better after after purchasing that policy. I thought that was interesting. That comes up again toward the end of his telling. Um, thought it was interesting. And that's chapter twenty seven. And. And he does, he does start to talk about radio. He starts to kind of tease us with what's happening with him, which Flywheel Shyster and Flywheel, which is, which is a nice setup for the, for the You Bet Your Life chapter. And, and there's a great, that BB gun story, which is funny, with Arthur. You know, when Arthur goes, Dad, I want a BB gun. You can't have a gun. I think, it's, I think it's, I'm not sure what kind of gun it is here. I told you, as long as I'm head of this house, you will not have a gun. If I had a gun, you wouldn't be head of this house. That, that famous story, which is, which is fun. I think it's very interesting that he does go back to a day at the races here, isn't it? When, he, when he's, he's talking about uh, his fear of, of losing money, because that story isn't just about a fear of, of losing his money. It's also about a fear of losing his, his standing, a fear of losing his reputation, right. uh, which was an equal, an equal kind of terror for him, I think. I think uh, one of the books, I can't remember which one it was, uh, says that he actually was made extremely uneasy being in the company of extras who used to be stars. Mm-hmm. He actually kept his distance from them, not out of in any way out of superciliousness, but out of a, a kind of a, a a fear of that happening. Right uh, from the time I'm reading and hearing from Arthur from the time Groucho was fifty, he was always considering his death. I mean, it was over. You know that. I mean, let's see. He's about fifty there. I mean, that was middle age to older. But people were dying sooner. It was over. It was like, what can you? There's no way that your career is going to get better from fifty on, and uh, that's the thought. Mm. And yet his as we know, did, thankfully for, for him and for all of us who got to experience his genius in the subsequent decades. Anyway, so that's where we are. We're in Chapter 27, about to go into Chapter yeah. 28. And we are, um, we are indeed uh, getting to the end. In fact, attentive readers uh, will have noted as, as they arrive at Chapter 27 that there's actually only 10 pages left of the book and uh, perhaps the biggest surprise of all uh, is that we haven't had reams and reams and reams yet about You Bet Your Life. He saved it all up basically for the last five pages. Um, as you say, we do get a, a, a brief digression into uh, Flywheel Shyster and Flywheel, which is perhaps a surprising inclusion. Um, he also speaks um, very positively about Chico's contribution to that show. He makes a point of saying that it didn't fail because of any, any fault on Chico's part. He then talks about uh, a series he did for uh, Delaney's Brewery, which is obviously Pabst. Um, and then finally, at the end of 27, uh, You Bet Your Life uh, shows up and then is, um, is the theme of, of 28. But once again, you know, chapter 28 is, is very brisk, mm-hmm. very hurried. Uh, he talks about the contestants, but very little else. Yes, and prior to that, he's, it's a nice mention of Bob Hope. He always has respect for Bob Hope in print, and his whole life he did. And I was just—I just did an event this past week where people were, were asked me, uh, "Did Bob Hope and Groucho Marx get along?" And it was an older—it was at a synagogue. It was a much older audience, and you know, the, he, and this gentleman said to me that the two biggest comedians that uh, when I was young were were Bob Hope 
and Groucho Marx, very different in, in, in some ways and very similar in terms of delivery and, and precision, too, of course. And uh, I, I'd like telling this story about that there was this mutual respect that these two had, that Groucho always said about, you know, referred to Bob Hope as the all-American boy with, uh, with no one having a better delivery than Bob Hope. You could read, uh, you know, the dictionary and it was just rat-a-tat-tat-tat and the timing was impeccable. And then I always, I love the story of, of Bob Hope being asked by a publication, a magazine, uh, who, who do you consider the greatest comedian who ever lived? And he goes, and, it, and I'm paraphrasing, uh, all of us, all of us comedians, all of, the, all of, uh, all of us, for, for our money, Groucho Marx is the greatest. <clears throat> There's no one wittier, basically, who what he says in that. And I love the fact that Hope did that, you know. And again, the, the competitive nature of what they do and what, you know, performing artists, particularly comedians, or they're, they're vicious, they can be vicious. I thought that was quite nice, and I think it's worth noting Hope's role in, in what happens here, the fact that they were both as, as great ad-libbers, no slouch, as, as, as Mark says about Hope. But going forward into the You Bet Your Life stories, yes, he starts going off, as you were saying, Matthew, about uh, contestants and highlights. I mean, you do get the feeling that, that, that uh, you know, that he, there's a words in front of his eyes that say, agreed minimum word limit fast approaching. Ah. <laughs> and there's the last great paragraph, you know, and it's recently, you know, Noah and I were talking about mm. the only time, the last time I looked at the, this is the, I guess, the 1989 English version. The only time I end up kind of go, refer, you know, referencing is when I'm, you know, trying to hone the show or make cuts or ads. And so... Uh, I worked with a director who said we need to, we need more spirit. I want to hear about the fact that he you know was self educated, that he had relationships with T. S. Eliot, that he loved uh, Gilbert and Sullivan. So now in the last ten years, those 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 moments have found their way in, in, in my show. And even even the Reedy Paiachi, I love you very much, is a great way to close the show. So I've added that. So be a real life Paliach and laugh, clown, laugh. And that's the kind of the final moment. But the last story that, if I if I may be indulged, and I don't, it's it's, it's that last story is, is so wonderful, and it chokes me up every time. And and um, if I may, he talks about uh, to the actor, it is Nirvana talking about working in television and building an audience. No traveling, no squalid hotels, no st- no snowbound trains in the hinterlands, no theater managers, etc. And then. Uh, uh, but, but even dear to the actor's heart, uh, you are admired and loved by millions of people. And this is what my, this is a great story. And a little, it's just laid in with schmaltz. I think I can best sum it up by relating what happened to me not so long ago. I was walking down State Street in Chicago when a middle-aged couple came up and began cycling me. And they went around me two or three times, looking me over as though I were a creature from outer space. Then the wife hesitantly came over and asked, You're him, aren't you? You're Groucho. I nodded. And then she touched me timidly on the arm and said, Please don't die. Just keep on living. Who could ask for anything more? I love that. So that, you know, that, so it's still a re- reference. It's still a resource for me. And, 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 his, and of course, Noah, as a scholar, is always, as it was mentioned to before, is always referencing these books for various projects and it's a, quite a lovely way to go out, you know, because you don't think of him. He's not sentimental. His kids weren't sentimental. I mean, it's, that's just—that's not part of their their core. It's not who they are, you know. And um, they're they're readers. They all they love to read. And I've mentioned this before, mm. but the gift mm. Groucho gives is this gift of of literature. They were reading Arthur and Mary were reading. Uh, 
When they were so deathly ill, literally, they'd never stopped. They always had books in hands. Their libraries were full. And that's a great gift. And they, you know, Arthur became a writer, and Miriam, Miriam could have been, but she was uh, waylaid with her disease of alcoholism. But she had a great mind and was a, gr was a very engaged human. And that, that's, that's, that's the legacy of this writer that is Groucho Marx. And uh, it, easy to be critical, hardest thing to do. I mean, I admire writers. I mean, it's the hardest job in the world. I'm an editor, but writers, as Groucho said, they, they do it all. There's nothing without the writing. So anyway, thank you for letting me share that, gentlemen. Well, I think that's a, that's a, a great place to, to end the, the main discussion. Do we have any final thoughts on, on Groucho and me? Well, I got a question. I'm popping in here. Okay. After hearing you read that last little bit, Frank, uh, what would you think about the, an audio book version of, the, of this book? I, I would love that. I'm trying to get all these books back out into the public. There's, there's issues with uh, rights. You know, there's Bernard Geis, and then there's Simon & Schuster. We're trying to figure it out. So I'd like to put out, a, you know, have them published or, and available, uh, you, know, uh, you know, to stream, you know, audio, you know. But we're working on it. I mean, these books, should, you know, there should be an omnibus. I would like to just have this big old collection of Groucho's works that can be accessed either you know, in, in person or on, online. So we're w working on it, but there, are, there really are issues trying to, I've been working on it for years, trying to clarify who has Groucho and me, who has the Groucho letters. Uh, Arthur, look, Arthur uh, copyrighted the, the last version, the Capo version, which, which was bequeathed to me. So it's like, I, but it seems like it, it may not be legitimately copyright. You know, so we're dealing with the legality of all that. And that's what happens, to, unfortunately, with a lot of work. It falls by the wayside because you can't figure out the, the ownership often. And this is never about, there's no money, you know. It's, you know, it's not like this is a money-making operation. It's just, it would be great if this work was out there so there's, people can easily access Groucho and me. You, ha, you know, you can't. But no, thanks for asking, Bob. And you know, we got to do it with the Love Groucho, and even that needs to be updated. Although you have so. to admit that Groucho would be rolling in his grave at the idea of an audio book, probably, right? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You know, I think maybe. I don't. I, yeah, because he was such a voracious reader. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, he. You know, he had a healthy ego. You know, I. I, I think that. I think he was very happy when his legacy was shared. You know. You know, whether it was seeing Minnie's boys and. You know, I think I think he had. You know, I don't think he. he I, how can you imagine that kind of life and career that he had? That that kind of success is off the charts. I mean, here we are in 2023, talking, spending two hours or so talking about it. It's got to be a bizarre thing. He's like in that 0 0.001 percentile of individuals who got to have this thing, and and, and it's great that we're we're able to be in a tiny way a part of kind of keeping him alive. You know, it's fun to see. I love seeing, you know, it's cliche, but, you know, when, I, when the young people are out in the audiences, it really is refreshing. They don't know who Groucho is. They don't know who I am. They're just having a great time with this persona and the interaction and the irreverence. I think that's forever. But, yeah, to answer your question, Bob, I'm working on it. The main thing for it would be for me to get these books out there again in some a, a new, re repacked, a new form, and, and celebrate his, his writing. And we might say for our listeners, um, many or most of whom I assume have access to Groucho and me as well as to all the other uh, classics on the Marx Brothers bookshelf, uh, it's worth 
putting yourself through the experience we've just put ourselves through for this episode and, you know, sit down with those books again and start on page one and read them from beginning to end. Uh, it's maybe surprising considering the level of enthusiasm and involvement we have with the Marx Brothers, how rarely we've actually done that, as we said at the top of the episode. Mm. And just cracking open Groucho and Me or Harpo Speaks or any of them and putting yourself through it page by page, just as you did the first time. There's a lot of value in that and a lot of pleasure in it. And I'd like to finish off by just by just noting two uh, lines in the book that, that leapt out at me uh, in terms of, of Groucho as a, as a wordsmith, as... as uh, trying to hone his talent as a comic writer. When, uh, he talks at one point about um, a period in the past when the dollar was really a dollar instead of the semi-comic certificate to which it has been reduced. <laughs> That's one. And the other is he, he talks about a butler who was exactly three years younger than Noah. <laughs> now, it, it strikes me um, that those are, those, are, but, you know, those are both basically good jokes. Um, but I'm reminded of, of what he would say about how when he was performing, he would hone lines by just changing a word here or an intonation or a stress or, or a rhythm and just tinker and just see which gets the best laugh. Um, because it seems to me that you would have two very, very, you know, serviceable comic lines here if what he'd actually written was when the dollar was really a dollar instead of the comic certificate to which it has been reduced and the butler who was three years younger than Noah. Those are both jokes. But I think it's the addition of semi to semi-comic and the, the utterly irrelevant addition uh, of exactly, mm-hmm. right. that he was exactly three years younger than Noah, that, that really clinches those lines. Yeah. And that, to me, is, you know, is, is a comic writer honing his craft. Oh, absolutely. Rhythms, the rhythms, the rhythms, that one syllable that makes a difference in a joke landing. Well, only some, you know, someone like him is going to know. Yeah. I'm, I'm transcribing, I'm transcribing uh, some of their stuff, some of the material for Groucho Life and Review, and the published script from Sammy French doesn't resemble the last time I did the show. And this script's been sent out to the designers, and it's like, and I'd finally read the Samuel French version, it's like, you've got to be kidding me. This is what's been going out to the amateur um, you know, producing public, and so, you know, a well or a now and an and, just the the music of a you know within a, with a monologue, as you know, you know, you write and Matthew, you write and you get, but when you're when you when you're performing it, you really you know I, I can I can relive it. I can I remember how those monologues went, and if the, a well was missing, you're not going to get a laugh if an uh is missing or a two, whatever. So this has been, you know, so to, to your point, Matthew, this guy, he knows what that one word does. And I always wonder, uh, did he share any of this writing with any of his friends? Does he show it to, to Sheikman or Krasna for, you know, mm. you know, uh, other, fa- you know, other experts might, might know. I don't know uh, who he would have handed a copy of this to. Would he have felt comfortable doing that? Would he invite that? Uh, I, don't, I don't know, um, but to your point, he was he was very precise, and he knew the importance of a of a of a pause and of a syllable, mm. and, um, and of, certainly of, of the rhythm of a of a, a paragraph. Mm. It's got to read. It's got to play like a monologue. I wonder if he recited any of this stuff. I wonder how much of it was taped too. You know, he had that dictaphone. He would do mm. all those letters were a lot of them were were, were dictated uh, were recorded and then you know and then transcribed. 
Somebody, I believe it's T.S. Eliot in the Groucho letters, who refers to Groucho and me as one of those rare books that where it feels like the author is reading the book aloud to you as you read it, uh-huh. uh, because the voice is so distinctive. Uh, there's, mm-hmm. there's clearly some truth to that. And it also reminds me of the point you're making, Frank, of uh, Cavett's story about writing a joke for Groucho uh, on The Tonight Show and Groucho telling him it mm-hmm. needs a sight and lay. You know, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh my God! I was driving the, 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 this guy, the, the artistic associate, artistic director at at the Walnut Crazy, because I was just sending back well, well. I mean, just like pages of wells and nows uh-huh. and hands. I thought he's he's yes. going to think I'm insane. This guy, there's no way. I mean, because that's how precise. Because I want it there for me, but also if, well, I want to get republish it and make sure that everyone, if if, anyone, if, if I ever if it ever goes out again, that it's done. Within those rhythms, of course, or I know that it, it's the difference between getting a laugh and not getting a laugh. And it's, I was disapp- I was like, it, it, thank goodness I, I caught it early enough, you know, before memorization started happening. And the designers already know what they're doing. But, you know, when you're in a rehearsal, you don't want to spend hours in a rehearsal room rewriting a show, you know, so. But, it, but uh, it's, that's a great story, the sightly, needs a sightly. That's so good. That's so good. Yeah. And Ned Cavett would know exactly what he meant by that. That's just shop talk that's as clear and direct as possible. Yes, totally. I've got one little uh, bit of journalism I wanted to share um, on the subject of Groucho and Me. This is an interesting book review that appeared in Newsday, Long Island Newsday, on September 30th, 1959. What's one of the things that's interesting about this review is that it was written by George Oppenheimer, who many of our listeners will know contributed to the screenplay of A Day at the Races and got credit in the Academy Bulletin. He was and George Oppenheimer is, is who we're talking about. Later in his career, he became a book critic. And um, one one interesting thing about this review is that it tells us that Groucho and Me was released right around the same time as Moss Hart's book, Act One. Now, it's no knock on any book to say it's not quite as good as Act One, which is one of the greatest (laughs) memoirs ever written. No no question. Yeah, uh, an inspiration to all who read it. But how interesting, what a season for theatrical memoirs, that Act One and Groucho and Me are reviewed in the same column. Um, Right. But what Oppenheimer has to say, um, he, he's, he's gently critical of Groucho here, uh, of the book. He praises Groucho as being a truly great comedian. But then he says, he is at his best when he is working with foils. His brothers, Harpo, Chico, and Zeppo, the late lamented dowager, Margaret Dumont, the hapless and hardy couples who dare to cross swords with him on his TV program. Unhappily, in his book, Groucho has no foil. This lack seems apparent to him, too, since he has titled his autobiography Groucho and Me, thereby supplying himself with an alter ego. Uh, There's more praise here for Groucho's jokes and timing, and he says, The sad thing is that Groucho seems almost frantically eager to conceal from his readers his high quota of intelligence, his liberalism, and his catholicity of taste. Uh, which it seems to me sort of harsh but fair. Uh, interesting, though, coming in print from somebody who knew and worked with Groucho and obviously mm-hmm. admired him a lot. And it's a rare example, mm. as you quoted somebody saying uh, earlier, Matthew, that the book was leniently reviewed, and that's true. Um, but there's a, a note of mild dissent that I think has um, some truth to it. 
So interesting. He, you know, it's even in the portraying. You need. I always need. You need an enemy. You need someone to fight with. You need that tension. You need the audience to to and, and, you know I I to 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 punch to play with. You know, so some of that's not quite there. He tries to give that give that to us a little bit with the Dobbin story and you know and the. You know, but he's kind of the foil uh, up to a certain point. Even with the uh, the ad, the cigarette ad, he's the one who's getting getting yeah. it. Uh, you know, um, but I do miss that kind of the pun- the puncher in there uh, that I, that we love. Um, but that the, the the friction that comes with his performances. You know, it's a great point about there's no there's no foil. There's no one to to pound away at, decimate. And then by calling the book Groucho and Me, you know, he is, consciously or not, he's acknowledging that, that there's a duality. Right. Right. Interesting. Mm. Yeah, you know, my impression was that it always was a a bestseller and that was well-reviewed because he was so beloved and he was still in that show. But I don't think I've ever looked at reviews. And if I did, it hasn't been since, you know, for 30 years. You know, if I ever, you know, back in the day where I'd go look at periodical guides and read everything. You know, and get the real magazines brought yeah. up to me, and you go, "Oh my God, Time Magazine!" So it's interesting that the reviews were were lenient, but not not particularly effusive, eh? Well, Is a lot of them are are very positive and very, mm-hmm. uh, you know, sort of uncritical in a way. Um, mm-hmm. Lenient in the sense of like, we love him. This is his autobiography. We're not going to. Do him right. the disservice of comparing it to right. uh, Act One, for example. You know, right. if you love Groucho, here read this book. It's like spending a few hours listening to him tell his right. stories. That, that kind of lenience. Also, what, we're trying to put it within the context of the time. What other? What were the other? What? Uh, what were other autobiographies like? How much information was actually shared? How much of? How much was made up? Apocryphal, whitewashing. You know, I'll cry tomorrow comes to mind. The Lillian, oh, Lillian yes. you know, where she's dealing with a serious issue. But I'm trying to think. Bing Crosby. Those books are just again; they're just PR pieces for the most part. Well, he certainly he certainly implies, doesn't he, that that his is the first unghosted one. Fred, since Allen, Fred Allen, yes, who mm-hmm. did write two yeah. really great memoirs. Yeah, mm. that's right. Okay, well, before we uh, before we thank Frank Ranty one final time for being our, our special guest, uh, I should point out once again to uh, anyone listening in black and white that I am drinking from a very nifty. Kippered Herring mug, uh, Kippered Herring coffee mug, uh, needless to say, uncontaminated by coffee, uh, which is as good uh, an opportunity as any to hand over to Noah for a Patreon update. Well, Matthew, it is the most wonderful time to be a subscriber to the Marx Brothers Council podcast on Patreon because postcard number 12, and that's a whole year of postcards now. Uh, postcard number 12 is at the printer as we record this, probably on its way to our subscribers as they hear this. And uh, number 12 is a beauty. Also, as promised in our last episode, if you subscribe at one of the top four levels, the postcard levels, before the end of the year, you will also receive postcard number 11. That's the November card and the one that gives you instant access to this contest. Uh, Subscription also means you will get a digital message with the contents of the postcard, so you don't have to wait to get it in the mail to enter the contest. To recap, the first subscriber to correctly identify all 45 faces in Sil Leva's beautiful artwork for postcard number 11, or 
whoever comes closest by 12 o'clock a.m. Eastern Time on January 1st, 2024. We'll receive, courtesy of our listener Sean Brennan, a Coconuts movie poster signed by Groucho Marx in 1976. To learn more and to subscribe, you can go to patreon.com slash Marx Brothers Council podcast, or you can go to Marx Brothers Council podcast.com and click the big orange Patreon button at the top of the page. Are you really going to spend New Year's Eve tallying these up? Yes, I am. <laughs> Well, the the uh, entry form, the the digital entry form, um, sends dated entries. So I could wait till January second or third and still know when they came in. Just like to say once again, uh, that was an extremely enjoyable podcast. Enjoyed that a lot. Thank you very much indeed, uh, Frank Ferranti, for for being here with us. It's my pleasure. Thank you both. Thank you both for what you're doing to keep this all alive. Uh, it was fun as hell. It was great. And thank you. You gave me a real gift. Rereading Groucho and me. Thank, thank you, you both. Frank. Thank you all. And Frank, as you know, at the end of the show, we always ask our guests to to pick uh, the song that we will uh, play out to. Uh, this can be absolutely anything. It can be a Marx song. It can be a song that's only vaguely related to the Marx Brothers. It can even be a song that's only related to the Marx Brothers in your mind and nobody else's. So you have an absolute free hand. What would you like us to uh, to finish the show with? Well, Matthew, the closing song that I like to pick for, for this episode... Uh, is Always by Irving Berlin. And considering how all of us here feel about the subject matter, that seems only appropriate. Schmaltzy, yes. Appropriate, yes. And uh, what the hey? Oh, hell, it's been 50 years that I've loved Groucho Marx. It's our uh, golden anniversary. So Always by Irving Berlin, dedicated to Julius Henry Marx. Thank you, Groucho. Thank you, Mr. Berlin. <laughs> Yeah.
Brothers Council podcast is produced by Bob Gassell. Matthew Cunningham's books, The Annotated Marx Brothers, and That's Me, Groucho, are published by McFarland. Noah Diamond's book, Give Me a Thrill, The Story of All Say She Is, is published by Bear Manor Media. For more info on this and all episodes, visit our website at MarxBrothersCouncilPodcast.com. Also look for us on X. And for the place to talk Marx and meet fellow fans, join us on the lively Marx Brothers Council Facebook group. See you next time! Okay, I got one last question before before I stop recording. Maybe I'll put this at the very end. You were talking earlier about uh, Groucho's relationship with Bob Hope. What could you tell us about his uh, relationship with uh, George Burns? Uh, they, you know, there's a little everything I've read and heard in interviews. Like you probably have already heard that there was some tension between the two of them. And yeah. I don't think I don't think Burns was a huge fan of, of Groucho's, and I think felt he was always on, and of course adored Arpo. I remember seeing George Burns when I was 13 in 1976, and he talks about and Carol Channing, who was the opener, and Burns tells a story about his kind of his rat pack, and it was like Rudy Valley and 86-year-old, 85-year-old Groucho, and the fact that he propped him up against a tree. I remember thinking that it was, people kind of giggled, but I thought it was also kind of a sad kind of statement about, you know, well, yeah, with Groucho, we propped, <laughs> we, we propped him up against a tree, you know, and it was something like that. It was like, it, that was the worry, I mean, because Groucho, it was, and for those of us who loved Groucho, we knew that he was really on the, it was like the last months of his life. Do you remember the story, Noah, about how, like, they're having some competition about who the funniest man in the world is, and I think Burns says Chaplin, and then Groucho says, I think I am. Yeah. Or that I must be because I'm funny, that I'm, I must be because I'm funnier than you, Groucho. You know, so it's something like Something to that. I thought I'd get, I'm workshopping the story. Please don't record this.